Welcome to C by GE Smart Tips. We're going to show you how to factory reset your C by GE bulbs, which will unpair your bulb from other devices and apps that it's connected to. There are two factory reset processes, which depend on the generation of bulbs and the firmware you're running on. Here's the first process, designed for bulbs with this package or for firmware version 2.8 or later. Start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. Then turn on the bulb for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Turn on for eight seconds. Turn off for two seconds. And then turn it on one last time. The bulb will flash on and off three times to show that the reset was successful. If it doesn't, your bulb may be running on an older version of firmware and will need to try the second factory reset process, which is designed for C by GE bulbs with this package or for firmware version 2.7 or earlier. Ready? Okay, start with your bulb off for at least five seconds. Then turn on the bulb for eight seconds. Doesn't this make you want to buy a GE smart bulb? Turn off for two seconds. Really easy reset turn process. Turn on for two seconds. Turn nice and off simple. for two seconds. Turn on for two seconds. <laughs> turn off for two seconds. <laughs> turn on for two seconds. Turn off for two seconds. Why not just build a little reset turn button to the whole for thing? Eight seconds. That you press down with a paper clip or something. Didn't they learn how to do that like 30 years ago? Turn off for two seconds. Are we really stepping back? Turn on for eight seconds. In technological progress? This is unbelievable. Turn off for two seconds. And then turn it on one last time. The bulb will flash on and off three times if it has been successfully reset. For more smart tips about our smart products, go to cbyge.com. Yeah, I think I'm turning that off for infinity seconds. I'm not getting one of those bulbs. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is the Druff and Friends show. About as early as it can be in July. 1.17 a.m. We've had July for uh, 77 minutes so far. And we're starting the show. You might ask yourself, why is he starting the show after 1 a.m.? And that's because that's when I can squeeze it in, in my World Series schedule. You may ask, isn't this going to interfere with events that you have planned to play? And the answer is, again, no, because the only thing I'm going to be playing today is a satellite at 8 p.m. So I'll have plenty of sleep before 8 p.m. So this is the only show you're going to hear until after I'm done with the World Series. I I can pretty much guarantee that. 
Well, you, know, I, you know what? I can't. There may be a day in between days of the main event, like around July 6th or 7th or something like that, that maybe I can do a show. So you may actually hear another one. But this is the show that uh, is the first one we're having since June 22nd, I believe. And we're going to cover some World Series topics, some general topics. You know how it goes on this show. If you're listening to this for the first time because you saw me or someone else wearing a Poker Fraud Alert hat around the Rio, then welcome. People have asked what this is, and it's kind of hard to describe. Poker Fraud Alert is a free-form radio show. Everyone's guess is, well, you must cover scams in poker, right? And I go, well, yes, we do. That's kind of our main focus. But we, we do many other things. We cover any interesting story in poker and gambling that I think not just the poker player wants to hear, but the general public would like to hear. I like to aim this show at everyone, not just the huge poker fans or poker players. I want everybody to be able to understand and appreciate the show. In fact, I've been complimented before that this is one of the few poker shows that does have such a wide appeal that I actually explain everything to those who may not understand some of the things that are going on. Anyway, enough patting myself on the back about this show. This is live from the Rio Las Vegas. Don't try to call me here because I've taken the phone off the hook. I'm wise to this already. I, I know what you guys like to do. I'm not going to have a phone ring in the background here. It's unprofessional. And you know I'm never unprofessional on this show. So therefore, the phone's off the hook. You cannot call and bother me. I have a feeling Trader Ruski fell asleep. He agreed to be on tonight. He's in Las Vegas as well. He's not with me physically. But I'm going to see if he's still here. See, someone just texted me here. They're also in the Rio. Someone just texted me uh, when I told them I'm starting the show. They said, fantastic, I need to get some sleep. Come on. But the truth is, I hear from so many people that they turn on this show to sleep. So many people. And I don't know what to think of that. I don't know if that's good or bad. They they try to tell me it's good, but I don't know. I don't know. If, if I can put you to sleep, I don't know if that's a compliment. But however you want to use it, that's fine, as long as you listen. We have no free roll tonight, so I will not be talking about the free roll. We will hold all the money for next week, the vast sums of money I'm holding on to. If you want to call into the show, you can do that tonight. The phone number, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Of course, we have the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is located in a cabin on the top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away by car. I actually had someone at the poker table talking about how they they have to leave Vegas for a few days to just get away from the whole Vegas scene and get away from the desert. They just can't stand it for seven weeks. And I said, well, you don't have to go back to L.A. There is a place you can go which looks and feels very different from Vegas that's much closer than L.A. And I told them about Mount Charleston, and they said they're going to go. I should actually get a commission from the Mount Charleston Chamber of Commerce, if that exists, for all the people I've referred to go there. Even though some people go there and don't spend any money, they just go there and hike. But still, I, I bring bodies to the area for nothing. The Mount Charleston Lions phone number 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary phone, forwards to me wherever I go. 
I'll admit I have not gone up there yet since I've come to Vegas. I've been playing a tournament every single day. I haven't had a single day without a tournament. So I haven't had time to get to Mount Charleston. I will get there before I leave the Vegas area. And uh, shortly afterwards, I will post a picture of me on the old 70s rotary phone that I've talked about for so long in the cabin. You will see a picture of it and you'll know that it's real because some people have doubted that the phone exists, even though the phone number exists. And even though if you look up the phone number, you see it's Mount Charleston, but that's not enough for some people. They they want photographic proof, so I'm going to bring it to them. I just haven't been there. If you've followed my antics at the World Series, you've seen I've played every day. Can't be, can't be two places at once. Okay, let's get Trey Ruski, who fortunately can be on this show and uh, in his bed at once. He'll probably fall asleep during this, but I don't blame him since we're starting at 1 in the morning. The fact that we can get him at all is a bonus. I wonder if we can... What's happening, Drop? You know, Trader Ruski, I just had an idea. We can't do it right now, but I wonder if later in the show if I might be able to pick up Calwatt because it's actually going to be early enough for him to wake up maybe by the time we're near done with the show. Yeah, no, you can probably, yeah. I don't know. I think there may be a large gap in between that, but I'm sure you'll get him on. And not only that, uh, this show, I bet, is good for our European listeners because uh, if they're not up yet, they're going to be up soon, provided they have a normal schedule. It's uh, It's Monday everywhere right now. But it's Monday morning, like it's it's nine almost nine thirty a.m. in London at the moment. I know we have some English listeners, so if if you're in Europe, you're probably happy about this. You can listen live, and you may still be in an event of the World Series. I know there's uh, some that are still going on right now. You may be in a, a deep stack or something else or a satellite. Do they run those very late at night? So if if you're grinding, whatever you're doing, I will be here all night. Live with you, and you can listen. Or if you need something to fall asleep, here I am. So, Trader Ruski, uh, I still haven't seen that oh, much thank of you. you. Drop, I'll use it to fall asleep. Okay, that's <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, well, you do, even while you're on the radio. But uh, so, Trader Ruski, I, I haven't seen much of you. This, uh, I, I know I've been very busy. I, I've been playing tournaments every day, but I, I haven't seen that much of you. I've seen you kind of pop in here and there at the while I'm playing, and that's all I've seen of you here. Yeah, no, I was in and out. I played three tournaments, and then just, yeah, I had some work to catch up on, too. Have, have you played any World Series of Poker events yet? I played in two tournaments. Um, the the uh, Deep Stack Championship one, and the uh, and then the tag team, me and uh, Vintage One played in. Okay, so so as far as bracelet events, the tag team was the only one, right? No. Oh no, the, the deep, deep stack. Oh, no, the deep stack. No, that's deep right. Stack that's, that's, that's right. It is. I forgot. It, it is. Okay. Whenever I hear deep stack, I would just think of like the Venetian, or, or just like some side events. I, I I forget that they now have a deep stack bracelet event. So okay, right, exactly. And then I played a one at Golden Nugget too. That I went pretty pretty deep in until my aces ran into fours and I was gone. Did you cash in any of them? I did not. That's, that's sad. That that is sad. Well, but it was a good trip though. That's a good. One. That's good. That's good to hear. Well, I'm going to talk about my trip so far. It's been uh, eventful in several ways, and some good, some bad, as is usually the case. Uh, There's also been a lot of action in the world of poker and gambling since I was last on. The biggest story there is has nothing to do with the World Series of Poker, has nothing to do with me personally, but it has to do with Caesars. You've probably heard by now that Caesars has been sold. There's now a different owner. For Caesars. 
We're going to talk about that as our lead topic. And I'll tell you everything you need to know about it, at least at the moment, everything you need to know. Because there's a lot of confusion about this. A lot of people don't, don't understand it very well. And I have dug deep, and I have also come up with my own theories, which I believe are correct. And I'll tell you all about the sale and what you can expect going forward and what's going to change. So if you want to know about that sale, this is the right show to listen to. I don't think any other show is going to cover it in this in-depth or be this accurate about it. And you'll see. You'll see as time passes how accurate I am, just like I have been about other things I've talked about with Caesars going forward. We're going to talk about the World Series of Poker, the time since we had our last show, I think on June 22nd, weeks four and five. I ran deep in an event uh, right upon my return from a two-week hiatus from the World Series. I didn't play at all from uh, June 10th through the 24th. On the 25th, I returned to play 1500 PL08, and I ran deep in the tournament and had a legitimate shot at a second bracelet. I'll talk about what happened in that event. I also had another spectacular start. Remember in the Big Fofty, I was 24th out of 7,000-something people on the first day. I had a similar start to the Mixed Hold'em. So what happened to the Mixed Hold'em? How did I end up doing? I'll tell you about that as well. Yesterday, I played the weirdest hand ever, at least tied for the weirdest hand ever that I've ever played in live poker at the $1,500 Limit Hold'em event, a hand that was so weird that at the end of it, I should have gotten a penalty but didn't. I'll tell you what happened there. The hand heard around the world was not a hand I played. It was a hand played by Bryce Yaki, a very good player, someone who I actually met a long, long time ago before anyone knew who he was. He was just a, a punk kid who played at the Hustler back then. But uh, now Bryce has become one of the best poker players and one of the best uh, mixed game players in the world. But uh, Bryce took what everyone believes to be the worst poker beat ever, and it happened to occur at one of the worst times ever. To take the beat. You may have heard about it. I'm going to play a little clip of it. You can't help but feel bad for Bryce when you hear this and when you understand how improbable it really was. It puts to shame any beat you, and I say you, the listener, you, Trader Ruski, I can even look in the mirror and say you to myself, any beat you have ever had in your life. I don't care how bad the beat was. I don't care what game you were playing. You've never taken a beat as bad as this. Guaranteed. You've heard the expression, diamonds are a girl's best friend. There's another expression that I came up with, that diamond cards are a World Series of Poker player's best friend. This is true more than ever in 2019. I'm going to tell you why it is so essential now to have a diamond card if you're going to be at the World Series of Poker for any length of time. And some ways that you can go about getting one, costing yourself the least money. And I'll also tell you what they don't get you. Final World Series topic. Remember I've been talking about how the World Series of Poker is going to be on the strip in the year 2020. But I did put the caveat that it may not be because it may not be done in time the new convention center where it's going to be moving to, which they still won't announce. Well, I think now it's starting to look more like one more year at the Rio 
and then 2021 being the year for the move to the to the convention center. So I don't believe the Rio is going to be sold in the meantime. I don't believe it's going to be demolished in the meantime. Probably I will be right back here a year from today. Maybe even doing a radio show again. I'll tell you why this is probably going to be delayed by a year. Other topics. This one is a, a breaking story. The Aria private games are back. Remember the private games that were being run against the law at the Aria where they were finding creative ways to shut out certain people from the games that they didn't want sitting there or or where they would have games where only pre-selected people would be in them and everybody else was shut out? Remember people have been complaining about this for years, including Greg Merson and many others? Remember how that became kind of a thing people were complaining about it a few months ago and I uh, covered it extensively on the show. Actually, it was last year. It wasn't a few months ago. Last year that this happened and I covered it extensively on the show. I even uh, received some compliments from ARIA players who saw me at the World Series about that segment and told me that they really appreciated the exposure I gave to it and they thought it was very accurate. Well, the private games are back and now they're supposedly legal. The Arias found a way to run them and is giving the middle finger to those who don't like it. This is all going on today on social media. I will read it all to you. Some very angry poker pros about this and justifiably so. Poker pro Aaron Mermelstein, a good Christian boy. Wait, no. Poker pro Aaron Mermelstein. I don't think we have to tell you what religion he is. He claims that he had $9,000 of Jew gold, I guess I just told you, $9,000 of Jew gold stolen from him at the Fort Lauderdale airport. By the way, for any new listeners, I, I'm Jewish myself, so I can say that. I forgot we may have some new listeners who might think, this is an anti-Semitic show, why am I listening to this? I can say that because I'm a Jew myself, a full, 100% pure-blooded Jew. And I'm cheap like one, too. So $9,000 stolen from him at the Fort Lauderdale airport... So he claims, which I think is probably true. And I'll tell you about the struggles he's going through to get that investigated. Very shady situation. Speaking of shady situations, I'm going to give you an update on the Aqua Caliente jackpot theft story, where the casino, the Indian casino near Palm Springs, California, was allegedly stealing people's jackpots, just refusing to pay them. And in fact, to some people, not even letting them cash out their tickets according to stories posted on PokerFraudAlert.com and elsewhere, including on my sister site, VegasCasinoTalk.com. But there is an update to the story that was given to me. I will tell you this interesting development in the Agua Caliente story, which if you don't know, you can go back and listen to the previous episode. Finally, we'll have our yearly 2019 Poker Hall of Fame candidates discussion. I will tell you who I think should get in, and I will remind you how rigged and crappy the whole process is to where people get elected. The Poker Hall of Fame is very, very corrupt, very, very subject to rigging, and it could easily be fixed, but they don't want to. So we'll go over that as our final story. You never know what else will come up. I think, uh, oh, let me, you know, someone texted this to me. Might as well read this. If you want to text me at any time, 775-372-8355 is the text number, which is also our main phone number. And you can text me anytime 
before, after, or during the show. Someone actually texted me that they wanted me to bring the leftover pizza that I had tonight down to their room in the Rio because they were hungry. And I said, okay, but then they later said they didn't want me to. But I would have. I really would have bring it, brought it to them. I would have been the, the uh, used pizza delivery service. On Twitter, Robinhood702, I don't know who he is, but Robinhood702 tweeted, Bill McBeath, CEO of Cosmopolitan Casino, is in for a huge payday once they sell. He signed a huge upfront deal with a piece of the pie if it sells. Seminole Hard Rock has been kicking the tires for over a year for $4 billion. Hmm. So, according to Robinhood702, I don't know if that is and if he's reliable, but he's claiming that the CEO of the Cosmo will get a large payday once it sells, and that Seminole Hard Rock may be the buyer. Interesting. Remember I told you, though? Remember I told you last week? Hasn't happened yet, but I told you last week that a sale is imminent for the Cosmo, and there's a good chance it will be completed by August 31st. So we will see if August 31st comes and it sells. You'll see I was right again. And if I was wrong, then we just won't talk about that again. You can go chat in the chat room. I don't know how many people are there. In fact, let me go in there. I'm not, I'm not even there. <laughs> that's, that's how dead the chat room is. I'm not even there. I'm going to go there right now. You can go in the chat room if you are on any device except a an iPhone or iPad because you need Flash in order to get in there. Yeah, it's just me and Matt the Rat. That's pretty sad. But it, it was, this wasn't an announced show, so I understand. And it's in the middle of the night. So if, if you want to go in there and chat with Matt the Rat and whoever else comes in, yeah, he just said, hey, now. Well, look, it's just me and you, Matt. That's the truth. But if, if you want to go in and chat with Matt and whoever else, you can go in. Don't bother if you're listening to the archives, which brings me to the final little piece of the intro. You can catch the show in the archives if you don't hear it live. If you weren't up in the middle of the night, you can catch it in one of many ways. You can listen on iTunes, on Stitcher, on the TuneIn app. TuneIn can be used to listen live and the archives. You can use Google Play. There's an app called Bullhorn, which usually works to listen to the show. And you can play the MP3 directly from the Poker, Poker Fraud Alert radio servers. Just go to PokerFraudAlert.com and click on the radio tab, and you'll just scroll down to the archives section and click on the appropriate icon, and it will take you to that listening method, or just search for Poker Fraud Alert. That's with no spaces. It's Poker Fraud Alert, all one word. Search for it on your favorite app that I just mentioned, and download it, and listen, and subscribe, whatever. The Call to Listen line. Can't forget about that. You can call and listen to the live show. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, none of these things. You can use any phone in the world that can dial. It has a few phone numbers. They're all the same. You can call 605-313-0736. You can call 641-741-1095. You can call 712-775-8162. I have three call-to-listen lines running. So this way, if one is malfunctioning, which they've been known to do, that there are the other two to call. The, the 605-313 number is the most reliable. But you can call whichever one you like. Two of them are in South Dakota. One is in Iowa. 
And look, I, I'm sparing no expense. I'm actually paying for three different phone numbers to constantly run this show. And when I say constantly, when we're not live on the air, then it plays streaming reruns on the call to listen line until we come back on the air. Streaming rerun just means it picks a random show we've done in the past, more than 300 episodes, and just runs it as if it's live. You can also use Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio to listen to it live or the streaming reruns. And if you want to hear the last show in the archives, just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. And it will play the latest episode in the archives. Now, keep in mind that you have to say it clearly. So don't say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. It's not going to get it. You've got to say it very clearly and slowly. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. That's how you got to say it. And if it does something else, say, Alexa, stop, and then start over. But it works. It works. I love showing people that, too. Like, I, I go in their house, and I, I say that, and they're all impressed that I can say that, and Alexa knows my show, and Alexa plays the show. And it, it, it's very impressive to them. It impresses people more than the call-to-listen line, even though I like the call-to-listen line better, personally. So, we will move on. We will start our first topic about the Caesars sale. Now, Trader Ruski, how much have you read about the Caesar sale? Just that that company, El Dorado, brought them, and that was about it. Okay. Didn't read much up on it at all. Well, that's good because you can listen to this and uh, learn some things about it. And then you, of course, can interject anything that uh, you come up with during this discussion. Sounds good. On June 23rd, it was announced that El Dorado Resorts bought Caesars for quite a lot of money because they weren't just buying Caesars Palace. They were buying Caesars Entertainment. They, they bought the entire company. They, they now own it. So it was a lot of money. You might wonder how much money. One million dollars. Obviously not that. I'd buy it if it were that. <laughs> but, uh, no, it was... More like one hundred billion dollars. Gentlemen, silence. Can you hear that, Trader Risky? Were you able to hear the sound effect? Well, I'll I'll assume he can. He must be busy. Okay, so anyway, uh, it actually sold for eight point seven billion dollars, and. You may have a lot of questions in your mind. What is El Dorado Resorts? What is it? What what just bought Caesars? How, how could something you haven't heard of have bought something so huge like Caesars? It's a good question, which we'll get to. Why? Why did Caesars sell? Uh, are Caesars going to be uh, El Dorado properties now? Is Caesars Palace going to be El Dorado Palace? What's going to happen to total rewards? What about your rewards credits? Are they, are they going to be zeroed? Are they going to be gone? Are they going to remove the program? What about El Dorado's existing program, Club One? Is that going to be the new total rewards? What about the World Series of Poker? What's going to happen to that? It's obviously not going to disappear, but is it going to change? Is it going to move out of the Rio? What about uh, the typical Caesars customer? What are, what are they going to notice has changed right away? And 
now that the sale has happened, uh, are there going to be any new markets that are going to be part of the Caesars empire? Now the El Dorado empire. You might even wonder, what if you're banned at a Caesars property? And what if you're banned at an El Dorado property? What if you're banned at either of those properties? Will this reset everything? We will get to all those questions. Trader Risky, are you back yet? Well, just chime in when you're back. I'm going to start here. So let's first start off with why was this sale made? And you might also wonder, does this have to do with the bankruptcy from a few years ago? Well, as far as the bankruptcy is concerned, the answer is partially, but not really. Carl Icahn, who held an increasing amount of Caesars. I I heard that he owned 10% of Caesars, but I was reading that he owned as much as 28% at one point. He was increasingly taking control of Caesars. And it was reported many times that Carl Icahn was pushing for two things. Number one, a quick replacement of CEO Mark Fersora. He was very anti-Mark Fersora. And number two, that he wanted the company to sell because he felt it would be the best way to raise the stock price. And that's all he cared about. This was not emotional for him. He had no attachment to Caesars. He just wanted to make money. He wanted the stock price to go up, and he felt that Mark Fersora was not the right guy to be at the helm to make that happen. And he also felt that Caesars selling would make the stock price go up. These were his goals. He recently acquired a few seats on the Caesars board. These seats were not occupied by him, but they were occupied by his lackeys, people who did exactly what he said. And it it was acknowledged that these board seats were being given to basically be proxies for him. So he acquired a few seats on the Caesars board. He's become increasingly influential at Caesars, and he's been pushing for a sale. There have been false alarms as far as possible sales, including Tillman Fertitta of... uh, the Golden Nugget wanted to buy Caesars, or at least merge with Caesars, but it didn't happen. Caesars said they were not interested. The rest of the board, the ones who were not lackeys of Carl Icahn's, didn't want to sell. They were not fans of that plan. But Icahn kept pressing and pressing and pressing, and he made it happen. I don't know what he did to make it happen, but he made it happen, and the sale took place. The sale that did take place valued the Caesars stock at $13 per share. That's the only way a sale like this can take place, is by valuing the stock at some price. So the sale valued the stock at $13 a share. This was substantially higher than its last close prior to the sale of $9.99, which which sounds like something you'd be buying at a discount store. So it went from the discount store price of $9.99 to $13, a 30% increase, which is pretty good. Okay, you're... you're, uh, you're going to love this. The reason Trader Ruski was gone, he just texted me, uh, he got in the shower. 
You know, Druff, that was a private message. <laughs> I, I just uh, look. I had to say it. It was just. Uh, I just thought to myself as soon as you texted that, I said, "You know what? This may be the first time ever that a co-host on a radio show or even a podcast gets in the shower in the middle." But but we we get everything. It would, have, it would have been seamless. All of a sudden, you started asking for me when you haven't done it for an hour. You know. <laughs> Yeah, what what happens with this show? We we have the co-host getting in the shower. We we have the winner of a free roll a few weeks ago, sitting out and riding his bike somewhere in the rain to I forgot to go get something, go get food or whatever, and he still wins. Wait, what's going on here? People have just hey, I just drove back from Vegas, so I had an excuse. Oh, I I didn't know you're not in Vegas anymore. Oh yeah. Oh no, you didn't get my message yet. No, I'm on my way back. Oh, I, I was on my way back. I didn't know that. Okay. Okay. All right. But what happened now? You're gone again. <laughs> I think we lost Trader Ruski again. At least it's not to another shower. All right. Well, ne- never mind. We're going we're to get going here if he can f- try to find his way back. Uh, let, let's. I, I want to tell you about El Dorado Resorts. What is it? Because I, I'll tell you, I had heard of it, but I didn't know much about it. Yeah, but he just dropped off Skype. He's just gone. This actually could be an error on my end. Let me try to call him back. Uh, not so much on my end because I'm at the Rio. The problem is that I'm, I'm a slave to their internet. And as I've mentioned before with hotel internets, broadcasting from the hotel is fine, but when I make connections out, outbound where they have to uh, – basically anything I download, like Trader Risky's voice, can not sound good due to the Rio's crappy internet. You there, Trader Risky? I can't hear him, but all righty. Let's all right. see. Oh, there we go. See, it's your equipment. It's not even the Rio's internet no, fault. But yeah, I unplugged and plugged my headphone back in. So all maybe right, all right. All we'll right. blame the Rio anyway. Okay, that's appropriate. They they deserve a lot of blame for a lot of things, so we'll just lump that in there. So El Dorado Resorts, let's get to what that is. They're not nearly as well-known as Caesars, that's for sure, but they do have, or shall I say they had prior to this sale, 26 properties around the U.S. You may say, 26 properties? How come I don't know what those are? How could I have not heard of them if there's 26 properties? Well, you might have heard of some of them. Uh, A lot of them are not branded El Dorado. And a lot of them are small, and a lot of them are in out-of-the-way places that are not typically associated with gambling. But their best-known brands are Isle, El Dorado, Lady Luck, and Tropicana. You'll go, oh, I know Tropicana in Vegas. No, 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 no. Not that Tropicana. That's actually not theirs. That actually has different ownership. They also own Circus Circus. You go, oh, I, I know Circus Circus, of course. They go, no, 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 no. Not the one in Vegas. The one in Reno. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they own like the red-headed stepchild of all properties. <laughs> they, they, they don't have the well-known Circus Circus. They don't have the well-known Tropicana. Uh, so they have a circus circus in Rio, but not the one in Rio, Reno, but not the one in Vegas. In Reno, they actually have three properties: El Dorado, Silver Legacy, which is kind of a weird property, and Circus Circus. They have the Tropicana in Atlantic City. They have casinos in a lot of different areas around the U.S. They have ones in. Iowa, you know, by the call to listen line, Colorado, Missouri, 
Florida, Louisiana, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, Mississippi, West Virginia. So there's a lot of different states and a lot of different cities where they have properties, but most of these are just not very well known. They're kind of locals casinos. They also have the Tropicana in Laughlin. They have the Mont Bleu in Lake Tahoe. So they do have some Nevada properties. Those three in Reno, the Trop in Laughlin, the Mont Bleu in Lake Tahoe. But what do they have in Vegas? they got to have something in Vegas, right? They've got to have some presence in Vegas prior to joining up with Caesars. Their presence in Vegas prior to that included this number of properties. Zero point zero. Yeah, they had no properties in Vegas, interestingly enough, but they do now. So that might be why you have not heard of El Dorado. They had a club, a player's club called Club One, which is not to be confused with the One Club, which is for different properties. So it's a lot of this is very confusing already. Different Circus Circus, different Tropicana, different Club One and One. The One Club are two different clubs. It's anyway. That's that's the way it is. A lot of confusion here. And drop the casino that the hustler turned into. Was that El Dorado or El Rancho? I want to say it was El something. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, there's you're seeing in Vegas. No, that the Hustler Casino in uh, Gardena, wherever it is. Oh, you mean it turns from? Yeah. Oh, 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 oh okay. I was thinking, what, what, I was like, is, was there a Hustler Club here that turned to a casino? I wasn't understanding. Uh, the one that was in, what was it before? It was the one know, that we play in LA. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I know, I know what the Hustler is now, and I, I used to know what it was, but I've, I'm not. It was something with a similar name, and that's all. Ever since I heard of this El Dorado buying Caesars, that's what I keep. Picturing. Oh, I'm trying to think what but it I want to be. say it was something else. I want to look this up. I'm going to look this up now. Now I'm curious. Yeah, see, I, I played as the Hustler shortly after it was the Hustler. So I didn't play poker there before that. My first hand of poker ever played was at the Hustler. Uh, let's see if I can figure out what that once was. Um, what was it before? It was the El Dorado. You're right. And it was actually owned by it was owned by El Dorado Enterprises, which was a different company. At least I think it was. Uh, This is El Dorado Resort, and that was El Dorado Enterprises. But that's it's it's owned by Larry Flint now and since two thousand. So that's uh, that's doesn't really matter anyway. So, but it's interesting. Good memory though. I, I I had not remembered that. I first played there in January 2001, about six months after it opened. So let's move on with the questions you may have about the Caesars sale. What about the name Caesars? Is that going to remain since El Dorado bought them? Is there going to be a name change? At this time, no, and probably not at all. They're all going to continue under their existing brands. Also, El Dorado has expanded in the past. 
And when they did, they mostly kept their existing brands intact, which usually is smart. Usually, if unless there's a reason to ditch the brand and go to something else, if a, a casino has loyalty and people are used to it, you don't want to change the name. The, the SLS learned that when they, they changed from the Sahara to SLS, and now they're just changed back to Sahara again. That just happened. That was not going to be a topic, but uh, that did just happen. Still going to be a fail, though. Maybe they'll change it to the good Caesars. Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to keep the Caesars brand. At, at the time I posted about this, this was my guess. But it turned out that my guess was correct because this has since been verified. And I'm going to read you from the press release. So far, everything I guessed initially, because I made a post on VegasCasinoTalk.com about this on the day of the sale, and everything I guessed has come true so far, at least of the things that have been addressed. From the El Dorado press release, why is El Dorado's name going to change to Caesars Entertainment? So it's still going to be called, not only is, uh, are, are the hotels going to stay the same, but they're actually changing the name of the company of El Dorado Resorts to Caesars Entertainment. It's going to still be called Caesars Entertainment, which is really strange. El Dorado bought them, but they're going to still be Caesars Entertainment. The answer was beyond the iconic Caesars Palace Las Vegas strip property, the name Caesars Entertainment is known worldwide. We will assume the Caesars name after the completion of the transaction to leverage the value of this iconic global brand and its legacy of leadership in the global gaming industry. While we have built a lot of equity over the years in the El Dorado brand and will continue to be used at several of our properties, we will seek to leverage the Caesars brand to continue to grow recognition of our company around the world. While the name will change, we will not change our approach to property operations and how we interact with guests and provide them service. On the contrary, we intend to apply our core operating philosophy across the Caesars property portfolio following the completion of the transaction. What is all that saying? That's saying all the names are staying the same, but uh, we may be eliminating some of the Caesars fail that we have noticed is taking place. I think that's what they're saying here. They didn't directly say that Caesars is doing a lot of dumb things. They're going to start correcting them, but that kind of sounds like it by that statement that we're going to be leveraging that. What was it? We're going to be applying our core operating philosophy across the Caesars property portfolio. That's interesting. That may actually be good that maybe some of this fail will finally stop. Maybe they've uh, realized what I've realized, and many of you have realized that they, operationally Caesars could be a lot better. But as you heard from that statement, they are not going to change anything to El Dorado, and the only El Dorado properties will be ones that are already called El Dorado. They're not changing those to anything else, but they're, they're leaving all the brands intact, which makes sense. That's actually from the official press release, an FAQ that El Dorado released. Here's also from that same press release, why are El Dorado and Caesars combining? Um, actually, that's, that's, that's dumb stuff. I won't even bother reading it. Just a lot of nonsense about their expansion and the... Uh, their scale and geographic footprint, blah, blah, blah. 
they do say that they're going to have uh, approximately 60 casino resorts across 16 states when this is done, which we'll get to shortly. What will be the management structure of the combined company? That's an interesting question. El Dorado's Gary Carano will be the executive chairman of the board. Tom Rieg, the CEO. Anthony Carano, president and CEO. And Brett Yunker, CFO, will continue to serve in their current positions upon completion of the transaction. And El Dorado's corporate and operating teams will retain their current roles and responsibility post the closing of this transaction. Our senior management leader, leadership structure will not change as a result of this transaction. That kind of sounds like they're going to be dropping those people in those positions at Caesars currently. Interesting. Uh, what does the com- combination of Eldorado and Caesars mean for me? Me meaning the typical customer. Actually, I think this is actually for shareholders. Never mind. This is not for the customer. Just skip that. Um, what are the plans to integrate the two companies? The integration process will take some time, and over the coming weeks, we plan to assemble a transition team comprised of leaders from both Eldorado and Caesars that will formulate a plan on how to best integrate the companies following completion of the transaction. We've had great success over the years in integrating the other acquired entities, and all Eldorado team members have been critical to this success, which we expect to be the case again as we integrate the Caesars properties once the transaction closes. When will the combination be completed? We expect the transaction to be completed in the first half of 2020, so we've got a while to wait. See, this I didn't know, of course, when I was posting my theories about everything. I, I didn't know when they planned to complete it. That's something that they'd have to announce, and so it looks like uh, a year from now will be done. El Dorado and Caesars will continue to operate as and compete as independent companies until then. Um, so that's that's the main information of relevance in that FAQ. But let's go back to my theories. And by the way, everything they put in that FAQ verified a lot of things I was guessing. So I'm proud of myself on this one. Uh, What will happen to total rewards, which is currently called Caesar's Rewards? And should you quickly spend your rewards credits that you're holding in fear that they may be zeroed or turned into something that's not as valuable. Well, good news. It's all going to stay the same. Caesar's rewards will remain. And that is because Caesar's rewards, a.k.a. total rewards, is one of Caesar's most valuable assets. So I figured as soon as the sale was announced on June 23rd that it was highly unlikely that it would be dismantled. And that also meant that people's reward credits were not going to be zeroed because that would really piss everybody off. That would not be a good way to start off the new combined company and say, hey, everybody, you've lost all your reward credits, but here's a great new program. No one would go for that. So, they, of course, they're going to keep everyone's reward credits. They're not going to disappear. Don't panic. Don't spend them if you don't need to. And it's going to still be called Caesar's Rewards going along with the whole theme of keeping the Caesars brand and calling themselves Caesars Entertainment when they're really El Dorado. So, then, what will happen to Club One, the existing rewards club for El Dorado Resorts? Well, as you just heard in the press release for about another year, nothing, but after that, it is going to be rolled into Caesars Rewards. 
That's the only thing I got a little bit wrong. I said it's going to happen sometime in 2019. It's actually going to happen in 2020. That Club One, if you have an account there, will be rolled into Caesars Rewards. What will happen if you have accounts at both places and you have one status better than the other? I don't know. I don't know how they're going to combine them, but it is going to get rolled into Caesars Rewards. That's happening for sure. That's uh, been announced already. Uh, Let me get the exact uh, statement on this here. I don't know. I was going to read you something, but I've lost whatever I was going to read you about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, but, but what I just said is true. What will happen to the World Series of Poker? Is it going to change? Is it going to move out of the Rio? And what will happen to guys like Jack Effel and Seth Polanski and Ty Stewart, who are the upper management of the World Series of Poker? Are they going to get fired or laid off? Well, the World Series of Poker is not likely to be any different in the immediate future under El Dorado leadership. That is because they don't have a World Series of Poker. There, there was no merging taking place there. This is something Caesars has, and El Dorado had no product even remotely similar. So they're just taking it as is. And despite some of the fail that is committed by the World Series of Poker, there is no doubt that the World Series of Poker performs extremely well for the company. It makes a ton of money. It continues to be wildly popular. It continues to grow despite the fact that poker is shrinking and poker is aging, but it's still growing every year. And those above the current management team in in the management structure of Caesars and now El Dorado, if they look at the World Series of Poker, they're not going to go, well, look at this. You know, the structures were bad in this event and... uh, and they, they were having people play in a warehouse, so we've got to replace uh, Jack Effel. No, that's not the way they would look at it. They're going to look at it like, well, let's see. The World Series of Poker brings tons of people to Vegas every year who not only enter the tournaments and play the cash games and play in the casino and stay in the hotel and spend, spend money on food, And we make a fortune from it, plus we have all these sponsors of the World Series of Poker that make additional money, plus we have our TV deals. So this thing is printing money, and every year it seems to be printing more money. Wow, these managers of the World Series of Poker are doing a spectacular job. So they're not going to fire them and replace them, because this is a tremendous success for Caesars. This is one of the few parts of Caesars that is a tremendous success. And when it works, you don't fix it. So any gripes that we have with the World Series of Poker are not even on their radar. So none of that's going to change. And the existing World Series of Poker management is likely to stay. El Dorado doesn't have their own people to replace them with because they didn't have a World Series of Poker. It's not like they've got their own tournament and they want to put their own people in. There's no people to put in to replace guys like Ethel Polanski and Stewart, so they should remain. Is there a chance that El Dorado could decide to replace them? Yeah, they could want to do a favor for someone or move someone else that's that's out of a job uh, because of the combining of the two companies. And 
that ends up replacing one of the managers. But because poker is a specialized area, you can't just drop anyone there. In fact, that's what they tried to do many years ago with Jeffrey Pollock, and you saw how that turned out. Jeffrey Pollock was a, a career marketer, and he had no business being in charge of the World Series of Poker, and there were a lot of fails because of that, a lot more than there are today. So the, the current management team is stable. It's been there for a long time. And it's specialized, and I just don't see that they have people to replace them with or have a desire to replace them because it's doing great. What about it moving? Well, that won't change. Uh, yes, it's going to move either next year or in 2021, but that has nothing to do with the sale. There are no Las Vegas El Dorado properties prior to the sale. So it's not like they have a new property to move it to. They don't. So it's, it's still slated to go to the convention center, which they haven't officially announced yet, but that's definitely where it's going. Whenever that's done and whenever it's ready and they have enough time to prepare and make sure it'll it'll work. So you have to understand, if they, if, like, if they finish the convention center on May 20th, 2020, they're not going to have the World Series of Poker starting there on May 29th. There just wouldn't be time. So it needs to be done long before that. That's why... I think the Rio is going to stay there, which we'll talk more about when we get to that subject. So you may be thinking, well, it sounds like nothing's changing. It sounds like for the average customer, not only for the next year won't there be changes, but uh, it sounds like after that it's going to be very similar. My answer, yes, you're right. Very little is going to change even after the sale and transition are complete. They're retaining the Caesars name. They're retaining the Caesars company name. They're retaining Caesars slash total rewards. As I said, if you have status with both total rewards and club one, you'll probably get the higher of the two statuses, but I'm not sure about that. Maybe Eldorado will sell some underperforming properties, but that's not in the plans at this time, and since they have a ton of small properties, not all of which are doing all that great, I, I don't know if selling properties is even something they want to do. It sounds like they may just want to have a massive group of properties in a lot of different places. You may ask, why? Why do they want to have 60 properties? Why is that important? One of the big draws of Caesars is the fact that your status goes with you. So if you're a diamond member who normally plays in Nevada, when you go to Atlantic city, you're still diamond. When you go to new Orleans and go to Harris, new Orleans, you're diamond. You go to Lake Tahoe and go to Harris, Lake Tahoe, you're still diamond. So wherever you go of any Caesars property, you're still, you still have the same status. You don't have the same offers. You may not get the exact same treatment, but you have the same reward status, and people really like that. People like not having to start over. They like having the perks with, at a property they've never visited before. So the bigger they can make this network of casinos, the more appealing it will become to customers. This is why Harris Rincon did so well. Is that it, it was the only... Caesar's property in California. 
and people chose that over the other Indian casinos in the area. There's several of them in that immediate area. More people chose the Rincon than the others because that was a Caesar's property, and anything they earned there would go towards their total reward status and vice versa. If they already earned a nice total reward status, then they would apply right away at Harris Rincon. So they're expanding this even further. Which leads me to my next point. You may want to know what new markets are going to be part of the new Caesars and El Dorado Empire. What is Caesars going to pick up from this? Well, they're going to pick up Blackhawk, Colorado, St. Louis, Missouri, Pompano Beach, Florida, Westlake, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, Columbus, Ohio, Evansville, Indiana, Waterloo, Iowa, Boonville, Missouri. <laughs> Boonville. Is that like in the boonies? Where would Boonville be? That's, a, that's such a strange-sounding name. Carothersville, Missouri. Cape Girardeau, Missouri. By the way, Cape Girardeau, here's a piece of trivia about Cape Girardeau. That's where Rush Limbaugh got his start. Rush Limbaugh was from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and he got a radio job there initially playing rock music. He was a DJ originally before he became a conservative talk show host. And he, uh, Rush Limbaugh's career was actually a failure. He, he jumped to different broadcasting jobs. Uh, I think he even broadcasted for a baseball team at one point. He just... He kept getting fired. It just wasn't going well. Uh, he had various divorces. His life was kind of a mess. Not like a complete mess, but he was a guy who just... Everything he tried never lasted long. And then he started a conservative talk show in the Sacramento, California area, and it all caught fire. And we're going on. Greenville, Mississippi. Lula, Mississippi. I'll admit I don't know where a lot of these places are. Vicksburg, Mississippi, and New Cumberland, West Virginia. I realize a lot of these places are ones you are likely to never visit, but it helps people who live in these areas. Because some people in these areas do not have an easy way to visit a Caesar's property. Some of them are not that far from Caesar's properties, but the more local, the better. And the fact that they're picking up a Florida property is going to be huge. Only one, but Caesars had no presence in Florida. And there are casinos in Florida, as I'm sure you know. I had been lamenting that. Why is there no Caesars property in Florida? I kind of wanted to go to one. <laughs> but uh, That's back when I could stay for free, when I was a seven star, which uh, you can't do anymore, even as a seven star. In case you don't know Florida, where is Pompano Beach? Well... Pompano Beach is between uh, Fort Lauderdale and uh, Delray Beach, if that helps you at all. It's north of Miami. It's north of Fort Lauderdale. But it's on the southern end of Florida. It's, it's nowhere near Orlando, for example. It's nowhere near Jacksonville. It's nowhere near Tampa or Tallahassee. It's still southern Florida. It's not quite Miami, but it's not that far from Miami. So if if you went to this uh, Pompano Beach casino that they now are going to own, uh, it wouldn't be that far of a drive to go visit Miami. That would obviously be, be a big draw to have a Caesar's property in Southern Florida. Um, I don't know how big it is this this property they have in Pompano Beach. 
but they do have one. This is called the uh, the Isle. Let me see. This is Casino Pompano. I hope I'm saying that right. But it's, the, it's Isle C- Casino Pompano. And there is a hotel there. Oh wait, <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> okay, so it's just a casino. That's that's kind of a fail. I clicked on Stay and Play on their website, and it's directing you to other hotels that are partners with them, like Westin Fort Lauderdale, Marriott Fort Lauderdale. So that's, that's kind of a fail. I wonder if they're going to build a hotel there. Like, that would make sense, right? Wouldn't that make sense that if there's a Caesars property in Florida, there's only one, that they have a hotel with it? Wouldn't that make sense? I would think that would make sense. Maybe, maybe there's some kind of zoning issue or approval process that may be difficult to get, but that, that would be the wise thing to do, in my opinion. What if you are banned currently from El Dorado properties or Caesars properties? Is this going to hit the reset button? Will you be able to go back? Well, I don't know for sure, but the answer is probably no. In fact, it's the opposite. If you're currently banned at either group of properties, there's a very good chance you'll be banned at both. And that is a big problem with these mergers and sales, is that ban lists start combining. Is it possible that maybe one of the list of banned players will just kind of get lost in the shuffle? Maybe. But it's also more likely that they're going to combine them. And you'll be banned at both. From a legal standpoint, what if you are trespassed at all Caesars properties? What if you've been told you can't come to all existing Caesars properties and they name them all to you and you're told you're going to be arrested if you come to any of those? And then you go to an El Dorado property, which is now the same company. Would you be arrested? The answer is probably no, because you were only trespassed from those specific properties. And if they take ownership of other properties, I don't believe you are required to know that. That you're just required to stay away from the properties that they told you to stay away from. I had this issue at... Well, drop, sorry. If you got kicked, if you got, if you got on the ban list... Wouldn't it say that Caesars is banning you from these properties? But now that El Dorado owns them, could the people that are banned from Caesars, maybe they've got some wiggle room? Um, well, the, I would tell you they're what, not Caesars properties anymore. Well, but I'll, 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 I'll tell you why you don't, because they actually – I've had this happen to me before. They actually read you a list of properties you can't visit. And and that actually brought up a question to me. I, I, I'm not going to say which, but a, a certain uh, chain of properties, not Caesars or MGM, by the way, but a certain chain of properties a, a long time ago banned me. I since got the ban rescinded, by the way, but uh, a certain chain of properties banned me. I'm not going to say which one it was. Again, not MGM or Caesars. And they listed to me all the property I was, I was banned from. But then they acquired a new property. And I had wondered... Am I banned from this one, too? And after some thinking about it, I said, no, I'm not, because they listed the properties I can't go to. And if I go to a new one they own, then that was not on the list. They can 
banned me from that too at that point, but I don't believe I could get arrested. So I actually did go to that property, not all the time, but I, I wasn't that afraid to go there. And then eventually I got the ban rescinded anyway. This is a long time ago. Uh, so the problem here is that uh, since you've been given a list of properties you're banned from, I don't think you can say, oh, well, a different owner now, that you're still banned from it. And what they actually can do now is combine the ban lists. Now, as I said, uh, you're not required to know this. You're not required to know about the sale and that it, the, or that the ban is expected to be applied to the new properties in this merging as well. But the problem is you, you next time you go to one of these and use your player's card, there's some chance that they will approach you and say, hey, uh, you're banned from these now too. So they won't arrest you, but they'll tell you, hey, uh, don't come back here and when we're invalidating your player's card and get out and if you come back you're arrested so that may happen to you not not today not tomorrow but when this whole process is complete in about a year you may if you're banned from el dorado properties you may find yourself banned at all caesar's properties and the world series and vice versa so that i'm not guaranteeing this but i'm saying there's a good chance this will happen that they will combine ban lists so this is always a bad thing when there's consolidation that's it's uh, the only good thing for the customer f- when consolidation occurs is the reward status you carry over from property to property. But aside from that, everything else is bad. There's less competition. There's combined ban lists. There's the situation when you do get banned, even if you've never been banned anywhere, if you get banned now that you're banned from a lot more properties. Think of a long time ago in Vegas before any of this consolidation occurred and everything was its own property. Think of how many options you had when you got banned from one. Think if you get banned from one Vegas casino back in 1990. You'd have so many different places you could go to. Now think about if you get banned from Caesars and MGM in Vegas. You don't have many options, do you? Yeah, you have a few places, but think of how much of Vegas you're shut out of if Caesars and MGM both banned you. And I think about this. I, I, I think about this. Like, I don't do advantage play that, that could get me. Oh, we're losing Trader Ruski. Good night, Trader Ruski. But uh, that's why I don't do, like, advantage play that, that uh, could get me thrown out of Caesars. I don't do advantage play that would get me thrown out of MGM. It's not worth it to me. I, I don't want to lose that group of properties. And it's very hard to appeal these things, sometimes impossible. And it's up to them if they want to hear your appeal at all or give you a chance. And often the answer is no. So that would be like a nightmare for me if I was banned from both Caesars and MGM, especially Caesars. So I keep that in mind. Whereas you know, if I'm at some small casino in another state I'm never going to come back to, they're... I'll sit at the blackjack game and count cards. Or something else that could get me thrown out. Not arrested, but thrown out. So this consolidation is not good. But as a customer, you're not going to see anything different for the next year. And in fact, an interesting thing that they mention in their FAQ is that they're going to continue competing as if they're different companies for the next year. So they're actually not going to even be cooperating. They're not going to be like sister properties. They're actually going to be competing as if they're two completely different companies and then 
finally they'll merge together and operate as one. So for about a year, there's going to be nothing at all different. And then after that, then uh, it looks like brand-wise it's all going to stay the same, but uh, operationally you might start to see some changes. But I think it'll be subtle. You might start seeing some policy changes. You might start seeing uh, uh, kind of company philosophy changes or customer service changes. You might start seeing that. Maybe Eldorado doesn't have as much fail. I don't know them very well. Maybe they have more fail. Maybe maybe it'll get worse. You may wish for the old Caesars back, sadly enough. It's kind of like when you're – think of you're, you're with a girlfriend or a wife that has some problems. Everybody's got problems. But you're, you're with someone and, and you're thinking, you know, I kind of want to be with someone different. She's got a lot of issues, but I think she does make me unhappy. I see these other girls around. And, you know, I bet if I got with one of these other girls, a lot of these issues, would be, I wouldn't have them with these other girls. And then eventually you leave her and you get with a new girl. And even though she doesn't have some of the issues your old girl had, she has new issues that the old one didn't have. And they're much worse. And you're like, oh, crap, I wish I had the old girlfriend back. <laughs> I've had that happen before. Now, well, sort of. I, I've never really wished to be back with any old girlfriends. But I have noticed that subsequent girlfriends were worse than previous ones. Not the one I'm with now, but uh, in the past. I've, I've had that and thought, well, crap. <laughs> I actually have, have taken a step down. And I, I, I don't, I didn't usually leave one for the other. That usually wasn't something I would do. But sometimes there wouldn't be that much time in between where it was easy to compare them. So this may be the case with Caesars and El Dorado. You may actually go, oh, wow, I wish we had old Caesars back. Yeah, I'll take all their fail back. It's kind of like last year when I had all my problems with the anxiety and the depression and all that terrible stuff happening and. I didn't have headaches anymore, and I lost weight, and I didn't have the desire to eat a lot late at night. Those were good things, but I thought, I'll take the weight back, and I'll take the headaches back, and I'll take the eating late at night back. I'll take all that back if I could just lose this horrible, severe anxiety and depression. Not a good trade. I, I got to trade it back, at least. Now I have all that back, <laughs> including about two-thirds of the weight, unfortunately. So that's where we stand right now. Uh, the last thing I want to mention with this merger, which I think you probably understand a lot better by this point, last thing I, I want to mention is uh, the way it was done, because you may still be confused about the whole thing about how it exactly took place. Um, This is what happened. Carl Icahn wanted $14 a share, and El Dorado offered $12 a share. And Icahn said no. He said, forget it. We're not doing it for $12 a share. So this was kind of a compromise. 
Uh, I guess it actually wasn't thirteen a share. I guess it ended up being uh, twelve seventy five a share. I guess my initial report of thirteen a share was a little bit incorrect. I got that from somewhere else, obviously. Also, this sale was actually a cash and shares swap. And after all the smoke clears, El Dorado is going to end up with 51% of the shares. And Caesars is going to retain 49% of the shares. Now, why is this significant? Well, remember, there, there's current shareholders of Caesars as well. So the current Caesar shareholders are going to retain 49%. El Dorado is going to have 51%. And the 51.49 gives El Dorado control. And that, that's a common thing in business where someone will take 51% as part of an agreement to give them control. Otherwise, if, if, if it's 50-50, then it, it, became, it becomes ambiguous of who's really in control. So 51-49 gives them a majority stake. So don't be fooled by the fact that they're keeping the name Caesars Entertainment. They're only doing that because it has much better brand recognition. But El Dorado is going to be in control, and they are going to have 51% of the company, and the existing shareholders of Caesars are going to keep 49%. So it's not a complete sale in the traditional sense. And this all was done because Carl Icahn wanted to see the share the, the stock price increase because he owned 28% of the Caesar stock. So obviously he made a lot of money from this. If it went from if it went up from nine ninety nine to twelve seventy five, that's a twenty seven point five percent. I said thirty percent earlier, but twenty seven point five percent. He made big money on this one. So you see why he was chomping at the bit to make this happen. He's very experienced in matters like these. So he came in with this plan. This wasn't something that he just decided on the fly or decided after looking into it. He he came in thinking, I'm going to buy up a lot of Caesars, and then I'm going to pressure them to sell, and then the stock price is going to jump, and I'm going to make money. And it did, and he made money, and it worked. How much is Icon going to get involved in the new company? If at all? I don't know. He may have gotten what he wanted. I don't he may even sell at this point. I I don't know. I don't know what he's gonna do at this point. I I think this was the extent of his plan. <laughs> I think I think he's accomplished what he set out to do. So he may bail out, I don't know what he's gonna do. I guess it depends what future he thinks this combined company has. He he may stay if he thinks that the stock price can go up further. I have not really read anything about what his role is going to be going forward. Uh, what about the Caesars board? I don't think they're going to remain. I, I believe that... Uh, 
I think Eldorado's taking control of that, but I'm not sure. But it's, it sounds like that from their FAQ. So there you go. That's uh, as much as I know at the moment. Some of this is speculation on my part. Not everything I've said here has been announced by the company. I think I've been pretty clear about what they've announced and what they haven't. But I'll be surprised if I got any of this very wrong. I have little details wrong here, but I surprise, I'll be surprised if anything I said or predicted ends up being grossly untrue. If you have any questions about this and how it affects you, you can always text me, 775-372-8355. By the way, we have two other topics tonight I forgot to announce. Uh, I had two different fails with picking up food late at night. They're going to be two different topics. You may say, why is this topic worthy? Well, because they're funny. People, people love hearing about my fails with customer service at the World Series. Like last year with the shower curtain. People love that story. People love the shower curtain story from last year at Harris. So people like these stories. So I tell them. I tell them at my own peril. I tell them, despite the fact that I might look like a caricature of a, of a Larry David type, I still tell the stories because I know you guys like them. Okay. Let's talk about some World Series stuff. I took a two-week break from the World Series, a planned break. It wasn't a tilt break because I was frustrated, but I, I was kind of frustrated, but that's not why I took the break. Uh, I can't spend seven weeks at the World Series anymore. I used to, but I can't spend seven weeks here because I have a family. And when I'm at the World Series, I can't see my family, and I don't want to do that for seven weeks. So I got, I came, I spent some time here, and then I went back for two weeks and, and spent time with my family, and then I came back and planned to stay to the end. Often I will make three trips, three shorter trips, where I come back in between, but this, this time, the way the series was put together, there was no way to do that. So I came back for good on the morning of the 25th. I drove overnight, actually. And then went to sleep and then woke up for the 3 p.m. event of the PLO 8. So coming to the PLO 8, I had one cash at the Big Fofty, where I had a tremendous day one, and then kind of a mediocre day two and not a very good day three, and I finished a 666th out of 28,000 something, which when you break it down is actually pretty good. That's actually way better than top 3%, kind of between 2 and 3% of the field was left when I busted. And that's where I finished. It's, it's kind of like finishing second or third in a field of 100. If I did that, you say, oh, wow, Druff, you kicked ass. But here, 666 out of uh, 28,000, that doesn't sound as good. Not, not that I'm super proud of it. And yes, it's easier to get to something like 666 in a giant field than it is to finish second in a 100-person field. But as far as percentage of the field, that's about equivalent. But that was it. The other events didn't go well. And they ranged between super fast bust outs and kind of busting middle of the field with like 50% of the field gone, which still isn't very impressive. So nothing else was close to caching. No other day twos, only the big 50 where I got to day three. Then I went home. Then I came back. And I played PLO8 with the plan to fire two bullets, which is the most you can fire in this event. 
I usually don't fire two bullets in anything, but I, I plan for PLO 8 and the mixed Omaha two days later to fi- fire two bullets if necessary. Well, PLO 8, it became necessary. About four hours into the event, I, I wasn't doing that hot. I still had starting stack. It wasn't a little bit, of, I think I was a little bit below starting stack. And I flopped a very big draw and got it in. And I bricked everything. And that was that. I go, well, that sucks. So I took a little break and re-registered. And that's what I do. I, some of these degenerates, they just run over to the cashier and buy in again and run back. I, I can't do that. I, I, when I bust, I, I need a little time. I need a little time to clear my head and get over the frustration of busting and not feel angry and not feel like I'm going to keep losing. I, I've, I've got to take a little time. I'll call my family. I'll... I'll just relax. And then when I feel up to it, obviously I can't take very long or too much time will pass, but it'll take 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and I'll go back and uh, re-register. This one, I took, I think I took a little bit less. I think it took 30 minutes here because uh, I didn't want too much time to pass. But after I felt good enough to re-enter, I walked back over there and bought in my second time. And I have to say, it did not go very well. I immediately started losing, and my starting stack of 25K got down to 9K. It wasn't even right away. It, it, it dwindled down, and I was down to 9K a few hours into it when 9K was very little. Not crippled, but pretty damn short to where any significant hand I would play, it had to be all in. But I was patient. And you know what? This structure was very, very slow. So slow that people were complaining all over Twitter about it, that the PLO8 event is a disaster because it's too slow. And it, it, it ignited a debate about the 1500 events, that should they go slow or should they go fast? The pros wanted them to go fast. Most of them, that is. If some, some who didn't want to go fast. But the, some of the pros really wanted them to go fast so they can just either do well or bust and go on to the next one. And others were happy it was slow, and and the recreational players mostly liked that it was slow because they get more play. I have to say, I'm kind of mixed on this one. It is frustrating to go a long time for nothing, and to not even cash, to go well into day two without even cashing. But when you get off to a lousy start, as I did, you have time to recover. You're, you're not pressed to act. You're not pressed to go in with mediocre hands. You can fold. You can wait for better spots. So that's what I did. I was very patient. And I'm going to give myself credit on this. When I sat for a long time between 9K and 12K, kind of yo-yoing back and forth, and it wasn't much to yo-yo. It was already getting later where the blinds were bigger. So I was really basically just picking up tiny pots and then losing the blinds, picking up tiny pots, losing the blinds. And it was kind of going back and forth like that. But I waited. I waited for a spot. Finally, I got to my high for a while of 14K when I won a small multi-way pot where everybody limped and I bit the flop in the small blind and went fold, fold, fold when I flopped a straight. Which in PLO 8 is good, but not like flopping a straight and hold them. Not more ways they can lose or chop. But anyway, they all folded. So I had 14K. And then shortly after that, this really aggressive, over-aggressive guy at the table, who I was waiting to pop at some point, I popped him and I doubled up. 
And then I won another decent sized hand. And suddenly I was back to 44K. Not back. I was at 44K for the first time in the event. And then I got myself to 59.6. I remember that number. 59.6 to end the day. And the average was like 61. So I got myself back to average. Hair below, but I, I finished the day. Nowhere near the money, but I finished the day slightly below average, which was a triumph given that I was down to 9K. And and I was super patient. It's not like I got a 9K and immediately doubled. Here I sat forever with a low stack, and I was super patient, and I played it very well, and I was very proud of myself. In fact, that final hand of the day, which took me from like, I think, uh, 48 to 59, I bluffed. I actually read correctly that the whole table just wanted to leave. It had been a long day. It was after 2 a.m. It was uh, limped in. Like a ton, Six people were in the pot. A flop came down that was not likely to hit a lot of people in 08. You know, if the board came uh, 743, that's not a pot you can bluff at in 08 with six people, if you know anything about 08. But uh, this was like queen 79. It's something that a lot of people can miss. So I said, you know what? Screw it. I've been pretty tight here. I haven't been seen getting out of line. Everyone, nobody wants to play the last hand and lose the last hand and take a lot of chances in the last hand. They want to bag their chips and be done. It's after 2 a.m. They're too tired to deal with this shit. So I fired out. Fold, 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 and one guy called. Another queen hit the turn. He checked. I put a decent-sized bet out, of course, uh, willing to fold if the guy uh, raised me. He thought for a second and pitched his hand. Very happy with myself on that one. Read the situation perfectly. Went into day two feeling good. Day two was up and down, but uh, I kind of held on to average. With everything that was going on back and forth, which I won't get into, I I kept kind of circling average. I'd get low, but then I'd start to win again. Then I'd start to go above average. Then I'd start to lose again. When the whole day was over, I was average. But there was only 58 people left at this point. We were well into the money. 58 people out of 1,117 were left. And I was starting to smell that bracelet. This was similar to last year at the 1500 No Limit event, where I went into dinner break of day two, average chips with 60 left. And again, I felt like I was in contention. I finished 33rd in that one last year. That was a No Limit event, not a Omaha event. Came into day three with average chips, 58 left. Got a pretty tough table draw, though, to be honest, this event had a ton of good pros left. I was surprised at how many good pros were still in this, given the field size of, of 1,117. I mean, you, you'd expect it in a 10K event or an event with kind of a, a small field because it has a niche following. Let's say it gets you know, 200 players, but... Over a thousand players to have this many good pros left was pretty surprising to me when we're down to 58. So I had a, a pretty tough table. I had uh, Eric Seidel. I had John Turner, you know, Pearl Jammer. I, have, I had uh, Jameson Painter. Various others. Some guys who 
aren't known names but are known to be good players. Definitely not a, a soft table by any means. Only problem? I wasn't running well. Pre-flop, I was running great. I was getting so many good hands dealt to me. So many premium Omaha high-low hands were dealt to me. Ace, ace, deuce, four, double suited. Ace, ace, deuce, three. Ace, two, three, four. Ace, two, four, five. I mean, I'm getting so many good hands dealt to me where I could easily crush. Or I could three-quarter people. I could counterfeit people. So many hands that could run up my chip stack, even against good players in 08. The only problem was the flop was coming horrible every time. Ace, two, three, four, double suited. We see the flop, jack, 10, eight. That actually happened. I mean, like, I kept getting that over and over and over again. When I would play big cards, when I'd get the ace, king, king, queen, and play that, then that's when the board comes 7-4-2. Always got the anti-flop, and I'd have to check fold. So, uh, I still had good patience. I said, you know what, I'm not going to waste chips on these. I know they probably hit, and I didn't, so I'm just going to check fold. So I just kept check folding when I missed. I was waiting I've, for opportunities. I did get one. Were my, the only good hand the entire day. I did. Uh, I got it all in and three quartered the pot, so that propped up my stack a little bit again. But that was it, and I just was losing every hand because I was missing every flop, which I'm sure is if if you've played Omaha Eight, it's happened to you, and there's nothing you can do. Unlike No Limit Hold'em, you you can't just run people off because they'll call you, especially if it's it's a split pot game, so they'll call you. Thinking, okay, well, at least I'm drawing to half the pot. Or at least I already have half the pot, so you know you can't just try to force them off. It's not like hold them. So if you're getting boards like that, then you're going to lose. But despite that, thanks to my patience, I still finished thirtieth place. Which I came into the day twenty ninth in chips. I finished thirtieth place. So I kind of finished uh, at about the average spot you would have expected from where I came in with chips which was very good considering the cards I was dealt. So was I disappointed? Yes. I Was I hoping to make a final table? Yes. Was I hoping to win a bracelet? Yes. Did I feel a sense of accomplishment getting that far when I had 9K at one point? Yes. Does it kind of suck to only get uh, $6,687 after all that play and how deep I got? Yes. The top prize was like 277K. I mean, what a difference. But... I felt I did all I could. I just wasn't flopping. There was nothing I could do. I walked away saying, kind of disappointing, but I, I, I can't question anything. I did a good job. And I walked away, I wouldn't say happy, but I walked away not feeling that bad. In fact, I felt okay enough to go play another event. Remember, this is day three, so this was interfering already with the mixed Omaha, which I had on the schedule to play. So the mixed Omaha is similar to PL08. That's part of the game. There's three games of mixed Omaha. You play Limit 08, PL08, and Big O, which is a five-card version of PL08. 
They're all high-low. They're all Omaha games. I also would have fired two bullets, but I was already late regging by about three hours because I busted from the PLO-8 about two hours into the day for Mixed Omaha, and then I I took about a 45-minute break. So given that I late regged already, I didn't know if there would even be time to want to do a second bullet. I wasn't going to come in with a second bullet and be super short-stacked. So I figured it might just be one bullet, and sure enough, it was because that bullet went very well. I finished with 82,800 in chips after day one, which turned out to be 16th out of 717 entrants. So another huge day one for me that it was my second chance, my chance to run good and do better than I did at the PLO8. And here I, I had a big stack coming in, not an average stack. And if I could just do well on day two, then I can come into day three with a big stack and maybe get to a final table, maybe win it. thought maybe the PLOA was just the warm-up, but what a good story would that be if I had 30th followed by a final table or followed by a bracelet win. So I came in, and I got a tough initial table. That table had Ryan LaPlante to my left. I had David Williams. I had uh, various other good pros, and I was like, oh, no, this is a terrible day two draw. There's still a lot of the field left, so it's not like it's not like near the end of the event you get tough pros. This was a very tough day two table. Well, I was happy to see that the table was breaking very soon, and it did, and I got moved, and I think I about broke even at the tough table, or I think I even won a little bit. So I, I, I got moved over to another table, which I thought was better, but it turned out it was not an easy table either. It was a little bit better, but wasn't that easy. I, I had uh, recent bracelet winner Yuval Bronstein to my left, my direct left, and he was kind of aggressive. I had uh, El Ezra to my direct right. And I, I had some other guys at the table who seemed like they were pretty good. So this was not an easy table. And at first I did okay. At first I ran it up to uh, 95K. Not a huge run up from 82, but... I had it at 95K, four hours, which was 40% through day two. So I was no longer as dominant as I was on day one, but I was still moving up. It was still the right direction. I was still about double of average, and it looked like things were fine. And then it all went downhill. And what I found, as soon as I came back from that second break, I just wasn't the same player anymore. I just, uh, something happened. I just uh, stopped doing everything right. It was just one of those days I just didn't have it anymore. I don't know what happened on that break or what, but um, the first thing that started my downfall was uh, I was in the big blind and Yuval Bronstein limped and it limped around and I checked in the big blind and I had uh, Queen Queen 10-8. So I saw it for free, and the board came 8-8-3. So I bet, and Bronstein, who had uh, sort of a short stack, he only had uh, 25K total, so it wasn't super short, but it was on the shorter side. He raised me. from I bet 2000 he raised me to 10000 So at that point, if I'm going to call 10000 I had trip eights with a queen kicker basically there. And I had no low draw. 
So my options really were there to just put it in and hope he was bluffing or semi-bluffing with like a low, a low draw that is. He couldn't have a low yet. Or or fold. Because uh, if I were to call the 10K, he'd only have 15K left and I'd be, basically be pot committed. So I just decided to put him in. And that was a mistake. That was a mistake because he limped under the gun, which meant there was a good chance that he had an ace, which meant that if he was raising this, that he probably would have ace eight, which would leave me crushed. Or pocket threes, which would leave me crushed. Either way, I don't want to see either of those two hands going all in. Well, sure enough, he had ace eight. And the board ran out, and uh, and I did not catch up. So there went 25K. But okay, I still had plenty of chips after that, right? But then... Uh, Another hand went down, and I didn't play it well, and I lost 35K to a guy who had a 35K stack. I doubled him up. Then another hand went down with Elia Lezra, where I could have gotten a lot more, but tried to get uh, fancy with it, and it ended up uh, making me much less, and in fact giving him a free card that he shouldn't have had. He didn't beat me, but I could have made a lot more on the hand. So I was, I was just... Missing everything. I, I just wasn't seeing things well, and I wasn't being patient, and I was playing hands that weren't as good. And I wasn't tilting. I just wasn't seeing things well. I didn't have the patience, and I didn't see things well. Like the day before, I would have totally seen that thing about him being under the gun, raising me with the ace eight. Like I would have totally seen that. So, oh wait, he has ace eight or threes. I'm not. I have no low draw. Screw it. I'm tossing it away. I don't care if he's short stacked. I'm tossing it away. Hey, if if he were very short stacked, I'd have to put it in because then he'd be doing that with any low. But uh, but with the stack he had, it was clear he was trying to... He probably was trying to get my chips in there and that's what happened. So I just wasn't seeing things well. I wasn't patient enough. I wasn't reasoning things out well. I wasn't making good folds when I should have folded. I was being too stubborn with holding out the hands when I get aggression back to me. And pretty soon I was short stacked. Then I got a little bit of a reprieve because uh, Elia Lazra busted to me. I got dealt a great hand in the small blind and it hit. Elia Lazra busted to me and I was back into like 60-something K. Not where I was before, but at least I was I was back somewhat. But then I started just losing every hand. And again, I wasn't uh, – I just wasn't playing well. I'll be honest. And I ended up uh, barely squeezing into the money. They paid 108 spots. I was gone by spot number 100. I was 100th place. So I cashed, but I wasn't looking for a min cash there. And that's what I got. Better than nothing, but that wasn't what I was looking for. It's kind of disappointing. Uh, next day, limit hold'em. I did not make it past day one. Now, 60% of the field didn't make it past day one, so I, I busted moments before the end of day one. The interesting hand that went down, this is something that I have to tell you guys about. It's the only thing I'll tell you about the event. Other than that, it was just, I went up and down a lot. I, I was uh, giving beats. I was taking beats. I was giving coolers, taking coolers. It was a very strange thing. A lot of weird hands that went there. I dealt a lot of premium hands, but then I just, kept winning and losing. I was never going anywhere until finally I went down and busted. But anyway, a hand that kind of gave me some life again towards the end. There was a guy there who wasn't very good, but he wasn't really out of line. If anything, he was too passive. And the weirdest thing happened. So 
I raised with Queen Jack offsuit, and he called in the big blind. This is the limit Holden, remember. The board came King 9 uh, 8. King 9 8. So obviously I'm hoping for the 10. He checked and called. Okay, very standard. I'm thinking if I don't get the 10, or maybe a queen or jack on the turn, I'm not firing this. I was going to give up. The turn? Beautiful, a 10. I had the absolute nuts. No, no flushes possible. I had the nuts. However, there were two spades on the board now. The 10 made the second spade. So I did have to think about that a little bit. Well, he check-raised me. I three-bet, he four-bet. Well, even though I had the nuts currently, I didn't want to five-bet him, even though the most you can do is five. But I didn't want to five-bet him because I said, well, it's clear he has queen-jack. What if he's got queen-jack of spades? So I don't want him free-rolling me for extra chips. I'll wait to see the river. And if the river is something safe, meaning it's not a spade and it's not pairing the board. I didn't think he had a set, but just... I want to have the absolute nuts on the river before I raise them, because we already went four bets. River came. It was a five. Didn't change anything. Was not a spade. Now I had the absolute nuts. Okay. He bet. I raised. He three bet. Well, I was once I called the three bet, I had only 500 in chips left, which was very little at that point. Wasn't even a full bet. So instead of four betting the final five or six hundred chips, I thought, okay, we went seven bets here. Obviously, it's chopping. I don't even feel like wasting the time here. I thought to myself, obviously, he's got the queen jack. We've got seven bets with this board. The river didn't change anything. The river couldn't have changed anything. So I, I don't want to put in this final five or six hundred as a re-raise and have him ask for a count to put that in there and make sure have him count it out and slow down the whole game. Like at some point you have to stop this. Like like think if you flop the straight, do you really go the whole way? I mean, I guess the flop and turn makes sense, but um, on the river at some point someone just calls always. And I can tell you from playing millions of hands of limit hold'em in my life, that's what happens. Is we, you, eventually you just stop raising. Live online, you can just go raise, 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 raise very, you know, very fast. But at some point, you just stop putting the chips in because you know what they have. You know they have the other queen jack. So I stopped, and everybody in the table says out loud, "Chop it!" Like everybody knows, except, except, and there's a reason I'm telling you this. I think you see it coming. He did not have queen jack. What? How could that be? He had 7-6 for the bottom end of the straight. <laughs> what was he doing? Did he not see it? How was 7-6 if the board is king 9-8-10? Can you not realize that 6-7 is not the nuts? How do you go seven bets like that? But that's what he did. He went seven bets with 7-6 on that board. So as soon as he turned it over, the guy to his right goes, no, that's not good. <laughs> I, I didn't say anything. I mean, I was thinking the same. 
And then I showed the Queen Jack, and they shipped the whole thing to me, and I felt like a fool for not getting that extra five or six hundred. Someone mocked me on Twitter. You know, it looks like you're not getting full value out of people. It wasn't. I didn't get full value. I mean, I guess I didn't, but it wasn't because I, I of a lack of skill. I really thought for my years and years of play that no one would ever do this. Now, if this guy was a maniac, sure, but as I said, if anything, he was too passive the whole way. I, I had not seen him spaz out like this, but. It was so weird. He must have just missed it. I don't know what he was thinking. That's really the that's tied for the weirdest live hand I've ever had. the The only hand that really is equivalent to that was in two thousand six on the Party Poker Cruise at four hundred eight hundred limit of all games. There was this Japanese guy who was just a maniac and a mega fish, and he put in seven bets on the river with the king high flush. (laughs) Wouldn't you think that once you get six bet with three of one suit on the board with no board paired and no straight flush possible, wouldn't you think when you get six bet and you have the king high flush, wouldn't you think that is the time to stop raising? But no, he seven bet me, so I eight bet him Still, like, checking my cards that I'm not seeing something wrong. Like, when he reached down for his chips, I quickly checked my cards to make sure I really had it. <laughs> and, and I had to keep, like, double-checking. There wasn't a straight flush possible, but no, he had the king-high flush. Finally, he stopped after eight bets and showed the king-high flush, and everybody was shaking their heads there. <laughs> that was uh, free money for me. There was a, a, a $6,400 river, that one. Now, of course, there's going to be a few bets put in, but not eight. $800 each. I mean, those are good days. But that was tied for the weirdest thing I've seen at Limit Hold'em live. On- online, I've seen weirder. What have I seen that's weirder? Online, I had a guy call me with a three high, the actual nut low, in a spot that would make no sense. It wasn't like the board was uh, something where they could beat. Uh, a lower pocket pair. It's not like he called it with, with, with pocket threes on a double paired board. It's just like a board of like five random cards. He called it three high. Um, I've had it where on a board of king ten six, where I had king six, we went 14 bets on the flop. And then a 10 hit the river to counterfeit me and make the middle pair beat me. And I won the hand. <laughs> So any king chops with me or beats me, any ten beats me, and somehow he had neither of those things. We went 14 bits on the flop. That was a good one, too. And it, it was rainbow, so it wasn't like he had a flush draw or anything. <laughs> so I've seen weird things like that, but uh, that was really weird. But Limit Hold'em did not go well. Despite being a Limit Hold'em player, despite Limit Hold'em being responsible for most of the money I have made in poker in my lifetime, I am in a Limit Hold'em slump at the World Series of Poker. I have lost nine straight Limit Hold'em events at the World Series of Poker, dating back to the middle of the 2016 World Series. Nine straight events. The last one I cashed was a 1,500-limit hold'em event, the one I just played in 2016. Chip leader with 42 left. I was at 40th. I did cash, but that wasn't what I was hoping for. Just a complete collapse 
of the worst beats and coolers you can imagine. I went on to play the 10K and the 3K that year, bricked them both. 2017, I played the 1500, 3K, and 10K, and bricked all three to make five losses in a row. 2018, I played those same three and bricked all three to make it eight losses in a row. And now with one loss in a limit hold'em event in 2019, that makes nine in a row where I have failed to cash. Have I ever had such a streak at the World Series of nine straight limit hold'em events without cashing? The answer is no. It's never happened to me before. What have I cashed in? I've actually cashed in four Omaha events since 2018. And three No Limit Hold'em events since 2018. So since 2018, I have seven caches, but all in No Limit Hold'em or Omaha. None in Limit Hold'em. Where I'm currently riding a nine-event losing streak. Hopefully that will end on July 2nd when I play the 10K. That would be a good time to end it. So that has been my World Series so far. Uh, later today, much later today at 8 p.m. Pacific, I will be playing a satellite, which is uh, somewhat of a card-catching contest, but nevertheless, I am playing an $1,100 satellite where you either win 10 k or lose. Not a bracelet event, though. It is part of my package. If you have package number one, if I, if I do win that, you get part of that. Whatever share you own. want to talk about the weirdest, or not the weirdest, I talked about that. I want to talk about the hand heard around the world. The worst beat ever taken in poker. This was taken by one Bryce Yaki. Bryce Yaki is a very successful tournament player. And he is from L.A., He originally played at the Hustler Casino, which we talked about earlier. That's where I first met him in 2006. I actually met him through a childhood friend who also plays poker. Not a known name by any means, but I met Bryce through that guy at the Hustler. Bryce was a nobody back then. Nobody knew who he was. I don't know if he was even a winning player. Uh, He was just the guy who went to the Hustler and played relatively low limits. Then you started to hear more about him in the late 2000s, early 2010s, and then uh, he's really broken out in recent years and is considered one of the best uh, mixed game players and just a really good tournament player. He has this aggressive style that seems to work for him. Bryce played the 50K Poker Players Championship, a very tough event. In fact, some poker pros consider it more prestigious than the main event. Much smaller field, because it's a 50K buy-in, but it's an event where you're playing a ton of different games, I think eight different games. Originally, this event had a different name, and at the very end of it, they would play No Limit Hold'em. 
and only No Limit Hold'em. And they did that for TV purposes, because the mixed games were boring to watch on TV. There were complaints that that kind of ruined the event, because it wasn't a No Limit event. So they did away with that, and now it is truly a mixed event. Bryce Yaki got down to the final four, which in that event is very impressive by itself. At the table, among others, was a name from the past, Josh Arie. Josh Arie finished third the year that Raymer won the World Series of Poker main event. Raymer was first, David Williams was second, Josh Arie was third. Arie eventually fell out of the poker scene, and I thought he was gone for good, but he returned uh, two years ago, I believe. I think it was two years ago when he, he actually bought a piece of me through Tasty Steaks at the 10K event of, the, of Limit Hold'em. <laughs> I get a message from Josh Arie going, Hey, are you still selling? Oh, yeah. How do I buy it? It'll send me PayPal. Okay, I did it. I'm like, okay. So he, you know, like he sent it to me. I was like, well, that's weird. Like he doesn't even know me well. But he just, he must have looked at my stats and liked what he saw and bought a piece of me. But uh, I don't know if he's ever played the 50K before. I didn't even know if he had the bankroll to do it, but he's back on the scene. He played the 50K and he was doing very well. He was down to the final four. In fact, he, I don't know if he was the chip leader then. I think he was. I think he was the chip leader then. And when I say then, I'm talking about the hand that went down that people are going to be talking about for a very long time. So this is being talked about as the worst beat ever in the World Series of Poker, but I'll go farther and say this is the worst beat ever in poker. I don't think you can find one that could be worse than this. So this is at the final table of the 50K Poker Players Championship. This was televised, so I'm going to play it to you. I'm going to play part of it to you. And this was in a hand called, in a deuce to seven. And I have to explain deuce to seven to you before we start this, because a lot of you may not be familiar with this game. They were playing limit deuce to seven triple draw which is a game where the object is to make a low hand. Unlike in like Omaha high-low, where you're making a high and a low at the same time, and there's always a high hand involved, in Deuce to 7 Triple Draw, there is never a high hand involved. You want to make the worst poker hand possible. Now, there's variations of these low-ball games where you're making the worst hand, some of which don't count flushes and straights. An example is Omaha high-low. The best low hand in Omaha high low is ace, two, three, four, five. Doesn't matter if it's a flush, and of course that would be a straight, but in Omaha high low, that is the lowest hand, because when you're figuring out what the low hand is, flushes and straights don't count. In deuce to seven, flushes and straights do count, and ace is considered high, so you can't have an ace or else your hand is not low. There's many hands that can beat you. So the very best hand, if you think about it, to have in Deuce to Seven is two, three, four, five, seven. Why not two, three, four, five, six? Well, because that's a straight. Why not ace two, three, four, five? Because the ace is high. So that would not be a low hand. 
So it's deuce, three, four, five, seven is the best possible hand. Uh, what's the second best possible hand? Deuce, three, four, six, seven. And it goes from there. The way you determine which hand is lower is by the highest card. So it's the same way if you think about it in a high poker game. Uh, the person with eight high in deuce to seven loses to the person with seven high. And if they both have eight high, then you go to the, the next card. So if they both have eight high, you go to the next highest card. And whoever has the lowest of the two cards uh, ends up winning. If, if they're both the same for the second card, you go to the third, etc., etc. And if they have the exact same five cards in their hand, they tie. This is not a flop game. They're actually holding the five cards in their hand. So that's uh, that's how this game works. And, of course, you're dealt a hand with five cards, and you may have lousy cards that you don't want, like, for example, an ace or a queen. So that's where the drawing comes in, where you choose to throw away certain cards you don't want and draw for them again at the risk of drawing even worse cards. If you're already dealt a very good hand in the first place, that's what's called a pat hand. That means you were dealt a great hand in the first place, so you don't want to draw anything. Even if you don't have the very best possible hand, or deuce three, four, five, seven, if you're very close to that, or somewhat close to that, if, if you're unlikely to improve by drawing, you're better off just standing pat. There's also a bluffing aspect, where you could stand pat and pretend you have something big, which actually isn't big. But typically, when someone stands pat, that really means that they were dealt a good hand. And it's a limit game, so you can't bluff people off. This game isn't played very often uh, as a direct cash game. It is part of mixed games sometimes. They do have deuce to seven tournaments at the World Series of Poker. I've never played one. I'm not good enough at the game yet. That's one of the games I'm going to work to improve on. I actually am going to start playing more mix, uh, especially at the World Series of Poker in 2020. So, in this particular hand, with the final four at the World Series of Poker, uh, by this point, Arie had uh, a nice lead going into this hand. He had uh, 10,000, or 10,700,000. John Esposito had 5.9 million. Uh, Phil Hui had. 4.3 4.3 million, and Bryce Yaki had 1.1 million. So Yaki was short. But Bryce was fortunate enough to get dealt an amazingly good hand. He was dealt a pat deuce three four six seven. Just dealt that right off the bat. You don't ever draw when you get that. The only way he could improve is by throwing away the six and hope to draw a five. But that's so unlikely you don't throw away a hand that's almost always beating your opponent. So Bryce was dealt a deuce three four six seven, and Arie was dealt ace queen three five six. So Arie uh, threw away the ace and the queen, obviously, 
And there's there's betting rounds each of the ways. Of uh, there's three rounds to draw, so it's called triple draw, and there's betting each time. So Yaki was thrilled with his hand. He's obviously going to go all the way with this. That's almost always going to be the winning hand. Deuce three four six seven. The very best hand they refer to as a wheel, even though it's not the wheel you, you know in Hold'em, which is which is uh, Ace two three four five. The wheel in Triple Draw is a Deuce three four five seven. But it's very unlikely for someone to make a wheel against you, as you might guess. So if you've got two, three, four, six, seven, you're almost always winning the hand. But that's not, I mean, you know what's going to be coming in this story, but that's not why this was such a bad beat. It's the way it went down. So listen to this. Elf. Seven, six, four, trade deuce. The second nuts, Pat, as well, Josh opened the button. The- and is in a I mean, world of hurt. In fact, he will be drawing dead, drawing two to the three, five, six. Price is about to close to double up, and I mean, this has really been quite a comeback. Well, if you always have a bad hand, it's going to happen. That's what I get for getting out of line. Exactly. <laughs> there is a road to. Now, the reason is, let me quickly tell you why they said that. Why they said he's drawing dead. Remember, the best hand is deuce three, four, five, seven. Notice what's not included in that: a six. The problem is that he has no idea that Bryce could have been dealt such an amazing hand at Deuce 3, 4, 6, 7. He doesn't know he needs the nuts to beat him. So Josh is happy with his 3, 5, 6 against one opponent especially. He's just going to dump the ace queen and try to improve from there. So, for example, if he were to end up with a 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, he's, pr- he's happy with that. Uh, he's never going to think about replacing the six just to try to get a five instead of it. You're just you're just not going to try for that. So for that reason, they're saying he's drawing dead because there's no way he's ever going to throw away that six. And that's what any competent player induced to seven would do is hold on to that six. So how could Bryce possibly lose here if the only hand that could beat him would be one that doesn't have the six and Josh is never going to let that six go? Well, let's listen. How did this happen? When for Josh, by the way, the deuce four slides in and we pitch the six. So that's what he just said. If the deuce four slides in, he pitches the six. What they're talking about is Josh threw away the obvious two, ace and queen. Well, if Josh draws deuce and four, that gives him a straight. At that point, he has to throw away the six and try to get something better. Why? Because deuce three, four, five, six is a straight. That's no good. That's never good. So you want to throw away the worst one of those cards. You love the deuce, three, four, five. You don't like the six. So you'll throw away the six only if you end up with the deuce, three, four, five, six, which can only happen if he throws away two cards and draws the deuce four. So he threw away the two cards. He's given two. Vicious. Very. Oh, and the deuce showing up is such terrible news for Josh. So, so So he, in his first draw... He does get a deuce. Not deuce four, he gets deuce queen. So now he has deuce three, five, six. So now he has to throw away the queen. You know it. The four, the four, seven still could come in. I'm good. Would be just a, a beat to end out. beats. Is that, how that, is that how it works? Pat, draw one. I mean, I, I You're catching improved. Up. You're catching up, yeah. Improved. Oh, my God. Here's <laughs> a commentary. Oh, my God. He actually got the four. There he has it. Deuce, three, four, five, six. They can't believe it. 
So he throws away the ace queen. He gets deuce six, uh, deuce queen again. He throws the queen back, gets the four. Now he's got the deuce three, four, five, six. Now he has to throw away the six and hope he gets a seven. And that's the only way he can beat Yaki. So even with this totally improbable situation to throw away two cards and get exactly deuce four in two draws, for his third draw, now he has to get the seven. Arya does make the straights, and he is so going bad. to reduce. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, Arya says, is referring to the fact that he's got the straight. He's like, oh, my gosh, look at this. But now this is no good for me. I have the damn straight. Now I've got to throw the damn six, he's thinking to himself. Unbelievable that he's live. So it, actually, it actually happened. Oh. So he, call, try to hit that nine, eight, or seven. I mean, nine could be good. So he also has to call a bet here. Because Bryce is betting. So he's not just getting to draw for nothing. He has to. He's got to pay to draw here. But he's thinking, okay, I've got to do it because I've got two, three, four, five. And if I get a, if I get it seven, eight, or nine, then that's still pro- a pretty good hand that can still beat pat hands that people stand with. People stand with much worse than two, three, four, six, seven. So he's thinking, I've got to call the bet and, and take a, a shot at getting a 7, 8, or 9, and, and maybe still winning. Is he going to fold? Considering folding? He has to believe that an 8 is going to be good in addition there's to the an, There's another draw, right? I'm not, because yes. they play very I'm fast. Not sure he I'm knows not even it, being funny. I... 9 high straight? Yeah. yeah. So he throws it back in and calls. Calling things over. And here comes his card, and I bet you know what that's going to be. Firing the last 280 out. You want to look at your card first? Oh, oh my, my God. God. I swear on my mother's life I didn't know that this was going to happen, man. So that's the amazing thing is the announcer. I don't know who this was. The announcer actually called it that this may happen. Like, oh, what if this happens? This happens. This happens. And it ends up with uh, Arya ends up beating him. And then it actually all happened that way. He's like, I swear on my mother's life I... Wasn't really thinking it was going to happen because he he kind of feels bad now that this awful beat is going to knock Yaki out in this 50k event final table was so improbable that he kind of called it almost like he jinxed him so he felt a little bit bad even though he didn't cause it. I was just kidding around. I I, I can't I even believe what just fucking happened. This is pure oh my god. That's the old one. Isn't my heart is bleeding no, for yeah, young Bryce Yaki. Can somebody what? make sure that that's a six? Because I threw a six oh away. You can look at it. Oh my no, god. This card for sure, but you can look at it. I don't care. Man, I was just, just messing sure around, Dolly. I mean, I, I can't I believe know. it actually happened. Oh, you're straight seven, huh? He started with three, five, six. I see it. I, 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 it's, this is a possible run out where the deuce oh, four wow. comes in and then you pitch a six. I mean, I, oh. Oh my god. This is like, this is the worst beat I've ever seen in a televised tournament. This is the worst beat I've ever seen in any tournament. Did you really make a wheel? Yeah. No fucking way! You made a wheel at pat number two. Oh my god, wow. dude, that's insane! Against three, wow. five, six, also. So price is busted here. That's this is his reaction. Ali, I want to start crying right now. A fucking wheel. Wow. Oh shit! Ah, price. Holy fuck! So price is almost in tears there. Listen to his reaction again. He was almost in tears. He's like, kind of like rubbing his forehead and eyes. It was, it, it was like he was about to cry here. He was so, he was so shocked by this. He thought, okay, I've got this one. It's done. And there's actually a shot of him with his arms out, like what? 
And he actually, in good humor, later on made this his profile pic on Twitter. Oh my god, wow. dude, that's insane! Against three, wow. five, six, also Ali. I want to start crying right now. I'm a fucking wheel. Wow. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, oh, Christ. Man. Holy fuck. I feel your pain, brother. I feel your pain. No, he doesn't. He I feels feel none of it. No, he feels 140K pay ladder is what he feels. Wow. I mean, we're on a little delay here. But I mean, That's first degree oh, filth. Wow. That is first degree filth. Oh, man. He doesn't even know how bad it is. Yeah, so Bryce... All he knows is his opponent made that amazing hand against him. He didn't even see how it happened. He saw the drawing. He didn't, until he could see the televised card, he didn't see the way it went down. And that Bryce, that, that, uh, Arya actually had a six in his hand. And the improbable way it had to come down for him to even throw away that six. And that's what makes it such an improbable beat. And that's what makes it worse than any possible Hold'em beat. Because certain events had to happen in that order for it to occur, which Hold'em doesn't have that sort of thing. There's no drawing in Hold'em. So no matter what the board runout is in Hold'em, you can't take that type of beat. There's just no way. The very worst beat that you can take in Hold'em is, uh, I believe... uh, I think it's one in uh, 900-something. Is that it? No, it's less than that. There, there, it's uh, the very worst beat you can take and hold them is where it's, it's a... It has to be two running cards. trying to think if this is possible. You know what, this... I think this is actually worse than anything in Hold'em you could take. Like in Hold'em, if... if uh, Like an example would be if you have pocket twos and the board is a 2-2-3 two, two, rainbow. The only way you could uh, lose that against, like, aces is uh, running aces. But... Um, That's still... I, I, I'm trying to think if there's something where you need actually one... No, that, that's what it is. It's, it's two... The very worst you can have in Hold'em are two cards left in the deck and you get one then the other. It can be in either order, of course. But you get one and then the other. That's the, the very worst it can be. So I'll, I'll calculate this right now. I used to know this. So once the flop is dealt... That means there are 45 cards left. There's two in your hand, two in the opponent's hand, and three on the flop. There's 45 unseen cards in a 52-card deck. So to get the first card, it's two out of 45. And to get the second card, it's uh, one out of 45. Or it's one out of 44. So that actually is, let me get that exact number, using a calculator right here. It's 1 in uh, 989, that's what I thought. 
And uh, one in 900, I think this is about equivalent to that. So this may actually be about equivalent to the running cards. One in 989 is, means you're a 98.90, a 99.9% favorite. Now, I read that Bryce was a 99.86% favorite. So that would actually say that running cards actually could be a little worse than this, but that's hard for me to believe. This still seems worse than running two cards. It has to be. I should have worked this out beforehand. I I, I trusted other people's numbers. Someone was saying Bryce had a 99.86% chance to win, but... It seems like it would be a higher chance than that. Is it more complicated to figure out because of the drawing? There are three draws at it. But two of the draws have to eventually bring forth deuce four, and exactly deuce four. And then after that, he has to draw seven. So I'm still not sure if this is worse than... The only two cards in the deck and hold them to run off on the turn and river. But at the very least, it's equivalent. Uh, someone claimed it was 99.86% that Bryce was, which is almost the same as this 99.9% and the thing I just calculated. But anyway, it's, it's about, at, at the very worst, it's the same as two running cards to beat you like that. Again, like you flopped quads against uh, a higher pair and the higher pair beats you with running quads. That's what it's like. Or maybe worse. But what a bad spot for that to happen. Like, if Bryce is going to have that happen to him, why does it have to be at a final table of the 50K event with four left? Now, yeah, Bryce was short. He was probably going out fourth anyway. That's the only consolation here, is that he was the one most likely to be out next. So it's not like this changed the course of the tournament. But still, he could have come back, maybe. Especially because he was going to double up here. What a bad spot for that to be. The only thing is now Bryce Yaki is probably the most famous fourth place finisher in this event's history. In fact, I'm sure he is. This will be something people talk about forever. This is going to be a hand that's always talked about. He's made his place in poker history. So that's really, really amazing. And of all times to go down. It always seems like the very worst things like this happen at critical times. I even had one like this. With 23 left, I've told this story recently, 23 left in a 5K No Limit Hold'em event. Not quite as bad as what Bryce had, but Flush over flush over flush on the flop, where I was not the higher flush. In fact, I was the lowest of the three flushes. Three flopped flushes in Hold'em, which I've never seen before or after. And I go, why did this have to happen of all times at a high buy-in, no-limit tournament near the money? For Bryce, even worse. Four left at the final table of the 50K. Ouch. 
Bryce jumped right back on the horse and he registered for 10K PLO8, an event I did not play. I considered it, but didn't play it this year. And was running deep last I saw. I don't know what ended up happening. Let me see. Let me go to his Twitter. His Twitter is suddenly Bryce. Oh, he finished eighth. Yeah, <laughs> he just goes and makes the final table. Now it's a small field event, so it's not as amazing as it sounds, but it's still pretty damn good. So he has that happen to him. He just comes back and makes eighth. That's that's Bryce Yaki for you. I do wonder with some of these guys how they uh, hit enough hands to keep doing this. I mean, even, even great players like Bryce Yaki, they uh, they have to catch cards. Sometimes I guess he can run well and play well. Someone did a calculation on Twitter named Ian Chan. Of course, it's an Asian guy. Of course, it's an Asian guy, right? But uh, some smart Asian math guy did this calculation. He said, I was curious, so I wrote and ran an AI simulator on the fame, infamous deuce hand. Don't mean to salt the wound, but to get the proper answer for Bryce. Here's the math. So I guess what he had to do is uh, run simulations of this hand to come up. Because this is a lot harder to calculate than just the Hold'em hand, where it's pretty straightforward with this. It's uh, because of the drawing involved. He had to run simulations to come up with what was going to happen. And he actually posted his AI program, and he posted the, a spreadsheet of the results. And he said, after a million trials, this yields 354 to 1. That in a million runouts of this with his program, that Bryce won 99.72% and REA won 0.28% with zero chops. So he said that's the closest they can get on the actual math of this is just running through a simulator of this a million hands as if this played out a million times with random draws and then coming up with what the percentages they would have won. So that uh, is not quite as bad as a running loss in Hold'em, but it's close. So I guess it wasn't the worst beat ever. Just the worst beat ever, maybe, in a televised tournament. And definitely in a, an important spot. Like a final table of a major tournament. Bryce retweeted this to show everyone. Of course, why wouldn't he? In a way, he's kind of proud of it. He's made his... Twitter main picture his reaction to this 
He's made his background Twitter picture a picture of cards showing Deuce three four five seven that he it looks like a stock photo. His Twitter description is "Food is life." Claim to fame is losing to number two to three five six and Deuce to seven. Certainly getting mileage out of this one. As I said, at least he's now part of poker history. He's not just a good player who some people talk about. He's part of poker history. People talk about this in a long time. Hey, remember that beat we saw with Bryce Yockey 25 years ago? Like, that's what it'll be like. It'll be one of those really, really memorable hands in poker. All right, let's move on here. 775-FRAUD55, if any of you are up. 775-372-8355. Quickly talk about why the Rio is probably going to stay the World Series venue through 2020. It's pretty simple. The Rio is the established venue that they're used to. They know their rooms very well. They know the capacity well. They still screw things up, but they're very familiar with everything. They know the parking well. They know the location of the cashiers where they're going to place them. They have to have special cashiers for this that they add. Uh, They've got everything running. Not perfectly, but they have it running, and they can repeat a lot of their old work. To have to redo all of this in a new venue is much more difficult than you think. If they have sufficient time, they can do it. But they probably need months to plan the whole thing. They have to do orders. They have to do staffing. They have to allocate the space. They have to do studies. They have. There's a lot they have to do to figure this out that will probably take at least a few months. And if they don't know if it will be completed in time, then they probably will not take the chance and they'll just leave it at the Rio. So let's say it's partially done, say, in February. They're not going to say, well, we see enough of it done to start making the planning, so we'll just start planning here. And, and you know, this way, when it's done in, in mid-May, uh, then we can bring all the stuff in and it'll be fine. No, they can't do that. Number one, they won't be sure if it's going to be done in time. What if it? What if, what if there's delays? It'll be a disaster. And, and number two, they have to announce beforehand where people are going to be going. They, they don't want everybody booking hotels on the Strip believing it's there only to have the tournament beat the Rio. They could do it. They could always change it. People would be unhappy, but they deal with it, but they wouldn't want that. And that's why they haven't announced this yet. Well, there's a few reasons they haven't announced this. They, they, they haven't announced it because it hasn't officially been decided. They haven't announced it because they don't know when it's going to happen. They don't want to disappoint people. They haven't announced this because they don't want to have people not go to this year's World Series thinking they'll just wait till next year for the better venue. 
So there's there's really not much benefit for them to announce, hey, in a year or two, it's it's going to be better at a better place in a more convenient location. Like, why, why announce that and then degrade this year's World Series or maybe next year's? But they do have to announce enough in advance to where people make their bookings expecting it to be in the place they think it's going to be. So they're not going to decide this in February or, or March to hold it there after everybody thought it was going to be at the Rio. So they're going to have to have a really good idea very soon that it is going to be done in time to not only use it, but also to plan to use it and to be sure that it will be done in time and that any delays wouldn't wreak havoc upon the World Series plans. It doesn't just need to be done in time. It needs to be done well in time. And there just is not much that has been done yet. They're furiously working on it, but look, we're we're on July 1st here. So, like, how much longer do they have before they're going to have to announce either it's there or it's coming back to the Rio? So it looks more likely than not now, as much as they'd love to have the World Series there for 2020, especially on what is really the 50-year anniversary of the World Series. This is the 50th World Series, but the World Series started in 1970. The 50th anniversary is actually in 2020. And what, what great timing it would be to move to a new venue, but I just think it's too much of a risk. I think it, the schedule's too tight. It's safe to leave it at the Rio. The Rio's not costing them very much to keep and to maintain. They're keeping it in a cheap holding pattern. So it's looking more likely now it is coming back in 2021, not 2020. To the, not coming back, it's moving in 2021 and coming back for 2020. Which means the Rio is not going to sell in the meantime. The only way it would possibly sell is if there's some kind of agreement that it can be used for the World Series in 2020. That is the only way it will sell. But these stories, oh, they're going to sell it, they're going to wreck it, it's going to be a baseball stadium, that's BS. It will not be wrecked until the World Series can be moved to the convention center. Period. I did say that 2020 is the earliest it will go there. I did say that it's possible it will not if it is not done in time, or if they can't be assured it will be done in time. And I think the latter is the problem. But we will see. The problem is they won't comment on this. They've been asked about it. They absolutely will not comment on whether it will move to that convention center at all, let alone when. So these are all subject to speculation. And unfortunately, a lot of the speculation has been stupid. I have been one of the few people to speculate this properly. And I, you know, I don't like to try to brag about my analysis versus other people's and say, oh, I'm smarter than everybody else. I don't think that usually. I think there's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of dumb people out there too, but there's a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of people who, who come to similar conclusions to what I do. Some people come to better conclusions than I do. Some people see things better than I do in some cases. And I think, oh, yeah, well, they, they analyze this better than I did. But but with this, everybody's off. Everybody's off except me. 
And you'll see. Uh, I will give credit to Haley Hintz. Uh, she wrote an article stating that it probably will not be there in 2020. And I read it and I agreed. The reasons all make sense. So thanks to her for this segment. She's usually on the ball. It's rare that I read a Haley piece and go, no, I don't, I don't think this is right. No, I think she's looking at it the wrong way. Once in a while, yes, but usually not. Usually she's very good with these things. Okay, so next we're going to talk about the final World Series topic for right now. And by the time I talk to you again... I will have played the 10K Limit Hold'em and at least part of the main event. Maybe all of the main event for me. I'm going to make a tweak to my strategy, by the way. I'm going to make a tweak to my main event strategy. We'll see how it works. Anyway, um... I can't say what it is, obviously, in case one of you end up at my table. But the last topic is about diamond cards. And it's more important than ever. It's nothing new that having a diamond card helps you at the World Series. But this year it is more important than ever, and it's going to stay this way, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's so different now and why it will stay so different compared to before. Before we get to that, let's talk about what a diamond card gets you at Caesars, as far as the World Series is concerned. Number one, the diamond registration room. It is a special room that has a guard standing in front of it that makes you show him your diamond card to get in. If you cannot show him your diamond card, he will not let you in. He does not check that thoroughly. You can show somebody else's diamond card, but it's possible they won't let you register if you come in and don't have your own diamond card. And you have to show your real card to register. So uh, uh, I don't know what would happen if you flashed a diamond card to the guard and then showed a gold to the uh, cashier. But uh, anyway, I don't think that's... I've even seen that happen. You, You basically need a diamond card to get in there. There's not no line, but the line is significantly less. What will be sometimes hours of lines for popular events will be 10, 15, 20 minutes in the diamond room. That's significant improvement. And when the line is kind of moderate, you know, half an hour in the regular line, you can sometimes walk right up in the diamond room without any line. So that really is a huge advantage for registration. That's number one. Number two, cash games at the Rio with a diamond card. And when I say diamond, I mean diamond or seven stars. Seven stars is higher than diamond. Either of these two work the same way in all these cases, so I'm just calling it diamond. But with a diamond card, you will jump to the top of the list for any cash games. I don't care if there's 25 names ahead of you and you walk up, you will go to the top. The only ones remaining ahead of you will be other diamonds that were there before you. So you'll jump ahead of everybody who was not a diamond. Isn't that nice? I don't know if all of you play cash, but uh, you do, and this works in all the cash sections, including the King's Lounge. Number three, no resort fees at any Caesars property. 
the resort fees now range from $32 to $39, and they keep going up. When you have a diamond card, you do not pay resort fees. And if you are a roommate of someone at the World Series, or any time at a Caesars property, not just at the World Series, but if you are a roommate at a Caesars property with someone who is not a diamond, they also get no resort fees. So as, as long as there's one person registered to the room, and they can be even registered after the fact. They don't have to be officially on the room when it's booked. It's, they just need to show up and be put as part of the room and no resort fees. Now, you have to trust the person, by the way. Don't just pick anyone because they have access to your room, obviously. But uh, you know, a trusted friend or relative that has a diamond card can be your uh, roommate, either your real roommate or your paper roommate. The paper roommate is one who never actually uses the room or sometimes a combination of both where they're a real roommate, but just they have another place that they're also at. There's a lot of ways it can be done. But as long as they're on the room, then no resort fees. You can only do one, by the way. You can't, if you have a diamond card, you can't go do this for 10 people. You can only do one at a time. So you can only get out of resort fees once at a time with your diamond card. But the bottom line is wherever you are staying, you will not pay resort fees, whether the, na- the room is in your name or not. That's pretty big. That really adds up if you're there a lot of days. Think about it. They're 32 to $39 plus tax per night. Next, and this one is overlooked sometimes, favors, exceptions. There are a lot of things that are done for diamond guests that are not done for guests who are not diamond. Sometimes you have to press. Sometimes you, sometimes they'll do it on the first try. Sometimes they, you have to press. But sometimes if you want an exception to policy, you can ask them and say, hey, I'm a diamond member. Can you do this for me? And often the answer will be yes, or sometimes it's no. You ask for a manager, and the manager will say yes. And you may say, well, look, Druff, you're, you're a Jew who complains about everything, and you just, uh, you're a demanding customer. I'm not like you. I'm easygoing. Well, hold on a second. It's not just about being a demanding customer. Let's say you want to have a room in a specific place in the building. You don't have to wait till check-in. You can call up and ask them to hold a room for you. They, it's at their discretion. They can say no, but if you get a supervisor and tell them you're diamond, and they'll do it for you. Um, when you check in, this is a big thing. You get to use the diamond room or the diamond line, if there is no diamond room open, to check in and... Again, jump the big line for checking in and checking out. They will give you basically unlimited waters at the front desk for free if you flash your diamond card and ask for water. If there's some policy that's stupid that you'd like to have them make an exception with, they will often do it if you just ask. If you're diamond. If you have a maintenance request and it's very busy, but you want them to come up and do it now, 
you can say, hey, I'm a diamond guest. Can you please give it priority and send them now? And they will do that. Sometimes they'll take forever anyway, but uh, sometimes it really does help. I found that's mixed. Sometimes they'll come up really fast and sometimes I'll be waiting three hours anyway. But uh, these are all things – you basically have status. You have a leg up on the average customer where you can ask for more things. You can ask for favors. You can ask for exceptions. It has to be within reason. You can't call the front desk and go, hey, I'm Diamond. Go out and pick up a pizza, my favorite pizza place, and bring it to me. They're not going to do that. Hey, I'm a Diamond. Let me go have a $1,000 meal on the house. No. Hey, I'm a Diamond. Give me the best suite in the place. No. In fact, it's important to understand that being Diamond will not get you better offers, more free play, better rooms, or free food. It won't. It's more about guaranteed benefits, like the skipped lines, the special rooms you can use. The Diamond Lounge you can't access until you actually earn more tier credits than than just regular Diamond. So uh, I'm not even covering the Diamond Lounge. They're kind of fail in Vegas anyway. But why does this matter so much for the World Series? Why, why, why now? I mean, this has been the case ever since it came to the Rio in 2005. So why am I covering this 14 years later? Well, something has changed at the World Series. What might that be? What, what has, what's one of the biggest changes we've seen at the World Series? Hmm. Ah, what could that be? Let me think about my own World Series. So I came here in late May, and I played the Big Fofty, and I finished 666th place, and yet that was really deep. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 666th place was really deep? Now, how could that be unless they're having gigantic field events like they never had before? And what if they have a lot more of them than they used to? So they have the big Fofty, they have the big eight, the eight eight eight, they have the Colossus, they have uh, the Deep Stacks, they have the Monster Stack. They have all these events that just draw such huge fields that they didn't used to have. Basically, every weekend and sometimes even on the weekdays, they're having gigantic field events that create tremendous lines everywhere. They create tremendous lines for check-in, tremendous lines for check-out, tremendous lines for registration of the events, especially. Tremendous lines at the cash games. There's just so many people here compared to what there used to be. So many cheap events that didn't used to exist that allow so many more people to play the World Series. You don't need $1,500 or $1,000 anymore to play a World Series event. No, you can play for much, much less. You can play for 400 bucks now. Huh. And what you may say, well, I don't play those $400 events. I don't care. Yeah, well, there's not separate rooms for the $400 events, though, is there? So when you have an event that is conflicting with one of those events, with all its rebuys... And there's a constant line. You will not be able to register for your relatively sparse event. Because it's all the same line. 
You have to stand on that same long-ass line to register. But with a diamond card, while there, you will not completely jump the line, you will stand on a much lesser line. And it's become, and I've noticed this myself this year, this year by far is worse than ever with the lines. By far the worst line year they've had. And it's only going to get worse because they like the fact that they get this many people. And the trend of cheaper events is going to not only continue, but probably increase. And soon there will be more and more cheap events running, and more and more lines at the cashier, and more and more lines for registration, more and more people playing cash games in between, more and more people staying at the hotel, just more people. And wouldn't it be nice to skip all of that? Or skip most of it? And what do you need for that? A diamond card. And what if you don't have a diamond card? Well, you can do without it, but it's very frustrating. Now, if you're coming for one or two events, is it worth it? No. It's, getting a diamond card is not like snapping your fingers. So if you're only coming for one or two events, you'll just have to tough out the lines and that's it. But if you're going to be here for a long time, you should get a diamond card. A guy at the Limit Hold'em event said to me at my table, I didn't know him, but he knew me, and he said to me, Oh, Dan Druff, I want to thank you for my seven stars. I knew what he meant by that. Because if you Google, if you just open up Google.com, and you Google Diamond in a Day, which is something that they promoted uh, about uh, how you can earn diamond in a day using getting the tier credit bonuses, that's something they've promoted at Caesars. So people Google Diamond in a day, and the number two, used to be number one, but now the number two result on Google is best ways to poker, best best ways to seven stars or Diamond in a day for Caesars. A very popular thread on PokerForAlert.com. And this thread, which you can find in the Casinos and Las Vegas forum, has 83,708 views. It blows away anything else in the casinos in Las Vegas form. This this has over 83,000 views. And people have learned from this thread the best way to earn diamond and to do it the most cheaply. And the, 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 the way to do it, the cheapest way to do it, is through video poker and... I go over all the different Caesars properties in the U.S. and where the best video poker is and how to find the best machines at each property and what your expected loss rates are. And you can see everything. I even have links to wizardofodds.com where you can learn the best strategy. If you don't want to learn it, you can just have it up on your phone and look it up when you need it. And people use this to go to the best places to play to earn seven stars and diamond. And I've had people coming up, including this year, and thanking me for this thread because they went to the properties that had the best video poker with the lowest house edge, and they earned their seven stars or their diamond in a cheaper way than they otherwise would. That's one way to do it. There is one other way if you don't wish to gamble and deal with the variance, which there always will be. There always will be variants. Some people thank me. Hey, guess what, Druff? I, I, I followed your advice and I played in this place and I, I hit 
a royal flush, and I ended up winning $14,000 while getting to seven stars. And I go, great. <laughs> but you can also lose a lot of money getting to seven stars. So what if you want to get a diamond card without the gambling? Well, there is a card that you can buy called the Founder's Card. The Founder's Card, I'm not even sure uh, who puts this out. It may even be a company called Founder's Card. I don't know. But Founder's Card gets you various benefits, but the best one is Caesar's Diamond Status. Uh, you also get, by the way, uh, Hilton Gold gold status and uh, AT&T discount of 15%. So those can be good, too. It is only $395 to get the Founders card. And it still works, according to an article I'm reading right now, to get diamond with it. Now, this could go away at any time, but once they give you the diamond card, it won't go away. So before you buy the Founders card, if that's the way you want to do it, uh, call them up before ordering it and say, hey, do I still get Caesar's Diamond or make sure it says it on their website? Once they give you Caesar's Diamond, then you're going to have it. Even if that benefit goes away, they're not going to rescind it. They just won't let you do it the next year. But that is one way you can continue to be Caesar's Diamond and you'll get the Hilton Gold, which can be useful and uh, 15% AT&T discount if you have AT&T. Uh, so that's something you can do. I've, I haven't done the Founders Card thing, but I might. You can also do status matches. These are free. But uh, supposedly you can only do a status match uh, once, I don't know, once lifetime or once per year. Not once per or, or or not consecutive years, but... I did a status match this year, so it didn't cost me anything. I didn't earn my diamond, but I did a status match to get my diamonds from another casino that was uh, covered where I had earned a premium card. Uh, basically, if you've earned a premium card at uh, most casinos, I don't mean tiny casinos, but most uh, most casinos or casino groups, and there's a thread on VegasCasinoTalk.com where you can see if you would qualify for free diamond through a status match. I can direct you to that thread if you wanted. You can text me at 775-372-8355. But you can status match, but supposedly you can't do it in consecutive years. So I have a feeling next year they're going to not let me do that, and I may have to get the Founders card. Uh, I I may have a little bit of time... Actually, I may not. If I have to... See, I may be traveling in early February to... I don't know. Maybe I may or may not. But uh, either way, what I do personally doesn't really matter to you guys. But uh, the Founders card is definitely a way. That, that one you can keep your total reward status for consecutive years. There's a, a blogger I'm reading right now that wrote a blog in February 2019 that says he's been diamond for five years through the Founders card. So that's something that you may want to consider if you don't really enjoy casino gambling or don't want to risk losing thousands playing video poker, even good video poker. 
I will tell you, if you use the Founders card, uh, then you will get no offers or anything. But keep in mind, if you play the very best video poker, you probably won't get many offers anyway. Like the, the properties are pretty wise to the fact that if you play good machines, that they don't really want your business. So even though you'll earn the diamond status, they're not going to give you very much as far as offers to come back and stay for free or get free food or free play. You'll get a little bit, but it's going to be unimpressive. So that's something to keep in mind. You may just want to do the Founders card. So definitely before you, you consider the Founders card, you should, you should see if you, you qualify for a status match. Now, if you don't have any other cards anywhere else that are high, then don't bother with the status match. I should I should ask Trader Ruski. He may actually qualify. He may not, he's not a diamond. I got to mention this to him. He's not a diamond, but I know he plays a lot at the Golden Nugget. He actually may have a high enough card at Golden Nugget to get the status match. He may not even know it. I have to tell him that. I have to try to remember to tell him that. I'm kind of sad that I didn't get to see much of Trader Ruski here. He just bounced from town here before. Uh, I thought he was staying longer than he did. I mean, like I didn't have any time for anybody. And I, I feel a little bit bad, like, Matt the Rat was out here. Um, I saw him, like, he came up to me several times during tournaments, and we hung out a little bit, but, uh, like, I saw people around. Um, another listener I met for the first time, a, a nice guy who played some of the same events I did. Uh, I saw him a lot during breaks and stuff, and we talked a lot, but, uh, like, I didn't really hang out with anybody because I played every single day. I was playing an event every single day since I came back on the 25th. Uh, tomorrow will be the first time that I'm not playing an event until the evening. And it's not even an event, I'm playing a satellite. But tomorrow is kind of like the first free day until the evening. So, yeah, I didn't get to see Trader Risk. I, I, had to get to, I don't know how I got off topic like that. I gotta stick to, it's 4 a.m. I got to stick to the topic. I'm never going to be done with this damn show. I got like way more to talk about too. Way more to talk about. So you may want to consider the founders card. You definitely want to see if you can qualify for a status match. But keep in mind, Diamond will pay for itself pretty quickly, especially if you get it through the founders card, because you're already saving between thirty and low forties dollars per night after tax on the resort fees. So if you stay for 10 nights at any Caesars property, the savings and resort fees are pretty much, and I'm talking about the Vegas properties, not in other markets, the savings of the resort fees is already going to pay for the Founders card. So really consider that if you're here for a while during the World Series and stay at Caesars properties. And once you have it, you're never going to want to go back. Once you have it, you're going to go, oh man, this is great. Oh, I, I can't imagine not having this. That's what you're going to think. Again, not for someone who comes and plays one or two events. And, of course, it's not just for the World Series, too. If you, you come to Caesars Properties other times of the year, you get the same benefits. It's not quite as good because the lines aren't as long. But you do get the same benefits. And also, you can talk them into upgrades. That's another thing. Now, in the real, I don't get upgrades because I don't want upgrades. I, I prefer to choose my room location rather than get upgrades. I, in, in the Rio, it's all about location, location, location. So I, I have certain locations I prefer in the Rio, and I use my diamond status to have them put me there. But at other properties, I will use it to get upgrades. 
not to suites, but they'll, you know, the, I can book the cheapest room and upgrade for free to a better regular room or a room with a view or things like that, a room with a high floor. So I, I, I just get a lot more choice than people without diamond. So really consider it. It's more important now than ever, and that's why I wanted to mention it. They used to be able to waive that stupid $3 takeout charge at the restaurants here if you were Diamond, if you asked them for it. But now they give you the middle finger, which sucks. That's such an obnoxious charge just to screw poker players. That's the only reason it's there is to screw poker players. I hope you know that. That stuff pisses me off. But I'm going to be honest, like, that type of thing really pisses me off. I understand Caesars is a business, and they're here to make money. And I don't mind, you know, I, I know they've got to charge a certain rake. And I know this is a profitable time for them. And they, they need to assure that this is making the money that they're projecting. But I don't like the nickel and diming where they charge someone for takeout materials that are free if you're sitting in the restaurant. So if you sit in the restaurant and then say, oh, you know what, I changed my mind, I'll take it to go. There's no charge. If you say, hey, I'd like this to go order, a $3 charge. And it's not a tip that goes to the, the person putting together the order. If there is a tip going to the people who are actually working to put it together, that's fine. I don't mind those people getting a tip, even if it's a forced tip. But it pisses me off when it goes to the store, and that's what it does. It goes, It just goes into Caesar's pocket. And that pisses me off. I hate it. I think it's just a nasty thing to do because they know a lot of poker players take food out. And they got that idea a few years ago. Oh, well, poker players, they, they can't all fit in these restaurants during the dinner breaks when there's thousands of people going to dinner. So there's a lot of people doing takeout. Why don't we gouge them all for $3 each? Really nasty. Okay. No more World Series topics. Let's move on. I'm going to tell you about some late-night dining follies of mine. Let's let's move to something completely different. I think the show's been too serious. We've talked about the sale of Caesars. We've talked about bad beats to Bryce Yockey and my World Series play. None of this has been very entertaining. The Diamond Card, I mean, this is not entertaining stuff. Let me tell you some entertaining stuff here. Not important stuff, but entertaining stuff. So... As you've heard, I've played a lot of tournaments, and for a few days, I was playing them very late. Think about it. PLO 8, it's a 3 p.m. tournament. I finished after 2 a.m., both day 1 and day 2. Day 3, I bust, but then I move right to Mixed Omaha. Make it through that day. Again, finish after 2 a.m. So what are my choices to eat after 2 a.m.? Well, not very much. Pretty much everything is closed. There's that crappy sports deli at the Rio, but you get sick of that real quick, and it's not very good, and it's kind of it's not expensive, but it just it just kind of sucks. I'll go there every once in a while, but not something I'd want to do every day or any, even every other day. So I've attempted to go to other places, and every freaking place I've gone to has been a fail in one way or another. 
So one of the nights I went to Sonic and I ordered a burger, um, a double burger with uh, plain no cheese. I quickly check it and it, uh, it looks good. I get all the way back to the hotel, all settled in my room. I open it up and it's full of cheese. It's melted all over it and you can't get it off. I don't like American cheese. I think it's gross. So that just ruins it for me. And, you know, if it's not all melted, I just can scrape it off and then eat it anyway. But uh, sometimes without the bun, but that's fine. But this was melted all over. There's no way to get it off. So I just had to throw it in the garbage. That was, pissed me off. Um, then I tried to walk around to find replacement food and everything was closed. I wasn't staying at the Rio at the time. I was at Harris, but, uh, Harris has worse food options late at night than the Rio, believe it or not. There's nothing open. I mean, nothing. It's a place with like some pastries. That's it. But real food, nothing. And I tried to walk around, nothing. I go to McDonald's. All they have is breakfast. I hate McDonald's breakfast. So I went to White Castle that night. But that's not even one of my stories. It's just a side story. But here, here's the real stories. So one of the times from Harris, I decided to walk over to Hash House, a go-go at the link, which is pretty close to Harris. It's walking distance. Hash House, if you're not familiar with it, is a small uh, restaurant, mainly specializes in breakfast. It's promoted to be a twisted farm food. And it has a good reputation. It started in San Diego. It was well-liked. And now there's uh, several locations. It's not a huge chain by any means. But uh, it came to Las Vegas some years ago. There's 11 total locations now. Um, I'm not sure when the first one in Vegas opened. But... They opened one first in the Link, which is the former Imperial Palace. It's a Caesar's property. And I'm talking about the Link Hotel, not not the Link uh, outdoor kind of uh, shopping slash amusement center. That's where that big wheel is. I'm not talking about that Link. I'm talking about the Link Hotel, former Imperial Palace. There is a hash house in there. Now, if you've been to the Rio... I'm sure you've been frustrated by Hash House, not by the service or the food, but by the hours. The Hash House that's in the Rio closes at like 2 p.m. <laughs> so, so it's not an option for dinner or late night. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. Everybody, I mean, people like Hash House here, but unless you're up early and as long as you're not playing an event, I mean, that's, that's uh, the only way you can go there. You can't go there for dinner or for late night. Why? I don't know, but they don't open it. But the hash house that is in the link is the opposite. It is 24 hours. You'd think it would actually make more sense to be 24 hours here, but that's the way Caesars does everything, ass backwards. Anyway, that location apparently was a rented location where hash house owned it and they rented it out from Caesars. They accepted rewards credits but this was in a reimbursement way. The the guest wouldn't know it. The guest would just know they'd pay with the reward credits and they'd take it. 
But the way it would really work is that the reward credits would be taken from the player and then the equivalent in cash would be paid to Hash House, who again, remember, was leasing the space. Well, Caesars liked Hash House so much that they decided that they wanted one of their own. And they ended up buying a franchise for Hash House to put in the Rio. So the Rio Hash House is Caesars owned. The Link Hash House is not Caesars owned, which is a little bit weird already. Like, this is the same market. And one is Caesars owned, and one is owned by the corporation that owns Hash House. Very weird. Well, it gets weirder. So I didn't know any of this stuff. I just assumed Hash House is Hash House. I thought Caesars had franchises in both places. That's what I thought. Why wouldn't I? I had ordered from the one at the Rio before. Last time I did was uh, in June, after finishing an all-night cash session in the King's Lounge, I walked over to Hash House, which is open because it was after 6 a.m., and I ordered something to go, and it was pretty good. And uh, the bartender there was very friendly, and uh, you know I had a good experience there. But I hadn't been to the one to, in the link yet, but this was perfect because everything else was closed. I was staying at Harris, which is walking distance from there. It was 24 hours. I had to remember the good experience I had over at uh, the Rio. Now, the Rio one also uh, gives certain discounts that, that I qualify for, but uh, the first thing I found out, which I kind of expected, was that at, at the, uh, the link they didn't offer any discounts, and they broke the news to me then that the reason they don't is because they're not the same ownership. I go, okay, well, do you guys at least accept rewards credits? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, good. So the meal I ordered there for takeout was $22. And I gave them my total rewards card, and they swiped it, and everything seemed to be good. They gave me my food. It was correct. And I was on my I even tipped the bartender who got it all together for me. I was on the way out and I saw out of the corner of my eye a sign. And I walked over to the sign and it said, Attention, starting such and such date in May, Caesar's rewards credits will now be charged at a rate of Two to one. Ugh. What does that mean? That means that you're paying double if you use reward credits. That means my $22 meal became a $44 meal since I paid by reward credits. You may say, well, who cares? That's not real money. Well, it's not real money, but I can buy things with it in substitution for real money, so why would I want to waste it? It's not just meaningless points that uh, are endless. These are points that run out. So why would I ever want to spend double when I don't have to? I would rather pay in real money than spend double reward credits and save the reward credits for other things where they're full value. I once had a debate with someone about that. I once had someone say, no, 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 you never spend money if you have reward credits. I don't care what rate you're getting it. I go, really? They go, I go, what if it was 10%? Yes, I would still spend it. I go, okay. 
then then you know you can transfer reward credits. How about you transfer me that? I'll give you ten cents on the dollar. Tra- you know, transfer me as many as you want, and I'll give you ten cents on the dollar in real cash right now. No, no, no. Why would I want to do that? I go. Well, I thought you said that uh, you you should never prioritize reward credits over real money. I'm offering you real money, ten cents on the dollar. Here, I'll give you fifty cents on the dollar. The guy's like, no, no. I'm like, well, okay. Now you now you see my point. <laughs> so anyway. I love when I could shut down people like that who make dumb statements like that, and then they, I pitch them an example that affects them, and they go, "Oh no, 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 no! I would, I don't want to do that." <laughs> so, back to my story here. I wish it was as simple as simply saying, "Okay, well, I didn't know this. It's a recent change. Please back it out, and I'll pay some other way." Unfortunately, that's not possible. Caesars, through their infinite wisdom, they decided that these restaurants that take rewards credits that are not uh, part of Caesars properties, that they get very limited access to the system, meaning all they can do is charge rewards credits. They cannot give reward credits back or refund rewards credits, (laughs) which is really bad if you think about it, that they can't even undo their transactions. So... And I had this happen once before in a different way where someone accidentally double-charged me and they had no way to fix it. And I ended up being nice about it and just saying, okay, look, how about you just give it, give me a free one for next time? And they agreed. It wasn't at Hash House. I'm just saying like the, the system really sucks that way, which is not – it's not the Hash House's fault that the, the system sucks. That's Caesar's decision to make the system suck. But they, they had no way to fix it at Hash House. At first, I tried to propose the same thing to them. Hey, how about just give me $22 credit, and I'll come back next time. And they're like, no, well, but we have a sign up here. And I'm like, look, and I, I was showing them why I didn't see the sign. See, the reason I didn't see the sign when I walked in was I walk in, and I, I'm not waiting or standing anywhere. I walk in, and I say right to the hostess, hey, where do I order takeout food? And she goes, oh, right over there to the bar. So I walk directly to the bar. I never see the sign. I only saw the sign walking out because I... I walked a little bit more to the left, and I wasn't really looking for anything anymore. Like when she points to me to the bar, like I'm looking where I'm going to find the bar. On the way out, I'm just kind of meandering meandering out and kind of just looking around. And there I see a sign out of the corner of my eye, a sign that you would see if you're waiting to be sat, but not if you're just walking into the bar. And I explained that to them, and they eventually agreed that it was – yeah, at first they weakly argued, oh, you know, we have the sign posted right here. It's right at this front. I go, well, no, but not if you ask where the bar is and you get pointed. You go, well, okay, I, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. I guess that could be missed. So they conceded I was correct about it, but they're like, well, we can't do anything about it. And I said, can you give me credit for next time? Oh, no, we, we, we don't really want to do that. You know, Just go to Total Rewards. They'll fix it. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot, but I may be coming back. So... It was a huge hassle to get this fixed. First, I walked over to the Cromwell, which is the only total rewards that's open 24 hours. And I learned something. It is the only total rewards open 24 hours, but the supervisor there is not a real supervisor. She, at least the one that they have working now overnight, is not given any power. She's called a supervisor, but she really has no power to override anything. She's just like a a more senior rep there. So she was completely useless. At first she said, oh, well, let me get a host for you and we'll see if a host can take care of it. Now, let me give you a piece of advice. If you ever are told to go to a host to fix an error, 
refuse. But you may say, well, why not? If the host can fix it, why not let him? Because the host isn't really fixing it. What the host is doing is comping it off. They're comping off the errors. You may say, okay, well, fine, great. No, not great, because every player, except for huge whales, which I doubt any of you are, every player, except for huge, huge whales, have some sort of limit to their comps. So every time you redeem something, that goes against what you have already earned. You've, you've earned a certain amount of comps that they don't tell you. They don't tell you what it is. I'm not talking about reward credits. I'm talking about comps they can actually give you when you ask for them. You've earned a certain number. And when you use them up, you're what's known as overcomped, and they won't give you more until you earn more through your play. So, for example, let's say you're a, a pretty active player, and you've spent all your rewards credits, and you go to a host at, C- at Caesar's property. Hey, uh, can you? I, I want to have a meal with my wife at the steakhouse. It's probably going to be like 200 bucks. You can comp it. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. I want to take my kids, too. It'll probably be about 350 that okay? Uh, yeah. I, I want to have a party there with ten friends. It'll be about two thousand bucks. Uh, no, no, we can't do that. So, so obviously there's a limit, right? You, you can't just get unlimited uh, spending power unless you're a really, really big player. Especially these days, they've cut down on comps. So, where the host makes this decision is based upon your play. You've earned a certain amount of comp power, and yeah, they have some discretion either way, but basically every dollar they use to cover anything comes out of what you can get in the future. It's not an exact science, but it, it does matter. So, for example, if there's a $22 error and your host fixes the $22 error, what the host is really doing is spending the $22 that you could have spent elsewhere with him. This is $22 that could have gone to a meal or, or other things you could have gotten. A second hotel room for a friend, whatever. Now, you can't get some of these things for $22, but it's $22 that could have gone towards it that you will no longer have access to. And sometimes the error can be bigger. Sometimes the error can be $100, $200, and the, the comping they do usually comes off of whatever comps you've earned. The only exception to this is if you're overcomped anyway, sometimes they just, at their discretion, can just give you the, the extra comps to, to, to fix something, and, and you'll be more overcomped. But... Uh, other than that, you never want to use hosts to fix errors. They're not fixing their spending. Um, think of it like this. Think of it like if your parents are supporting you. And uh, you, know, you can't ask your dad for unlimited money. There's only so much he's going to give you every month. So you know, when it comes to paying rent, yeah, your dad gives it to you. Uh, basic money for food, your dad gives it to you. Money for clothes, your dad gives it to you. Money for your car, maybe he'll give it to you. But but then you, um, let, let's say your phone bill has an error and it's $22 too much this month. Um, if you ask your dad for that $22, that's $22 he probably would have given you for, for something else that uh, <laughs> they could have spent it on other than fixing an error. So that's not like a good way to fix your phone bills to go to your dad and say, hey, dad, the phone bill, the phone company charged me too much. Can you give me $22 extra? Like what your dad would say is, no, just go fix this yourself. Go and get it fixed. I'm not, that's what the host is doing. He's like being your dad, just giving the money to fix something, but then he's going to cheap out somewhere else 
because you're spending that money to fix it. So you should never have a host fix errors. That's not where hosts are for. And what a host never does is looks into the problem or talks the hotel out of the mistake. No, they just they just apply comp points to fix things. So I said absolutely not. Now, truthfully, I haven't earned comps anyway here in Vegas. I'm way overcomped in the Vegas market. So that wasn't going to work anyway. But even if I did have comp power here, I wouldn't have done that for the reasons I just told you. So I told the the quote supervisor at the Cromwell that, and she's like, "Oh no, no, you know they 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 can fix a lot of things." And then I, I explained the whole thing again to her, and she goes, "Oh well, yeah, you might be right about that." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, so now we agree that the host is not the right one to handle this. Who who is? Um, the restaurant." I go, "No, they just sent me over here." Well, it's their mistake. They need to take responsibility. I go, "I understand that, but they don't they don't have a way to fix it. I believe them." Well, but they've got to find a way. I'm like, oh my God, this is not going to get anywhere. So she was trying to be nice, but she was just guessing at things and she was of no help. So I left. I called the restaurant and said, look, guys, can you do something? Can you maybe just give me credit for next time? Can you do something about this? And they, they were nice about it, but they were still saying, I've got to try again. You told me to try during business hours with total rewards and not go to Cromwell at four in the morning. I go, okay, you're probably right about that part. So... I went to another total rewards desk that is not open 24 hours during the day. And I asked for the supervisor and I talked to the supervisor and she was all ready with an answer. And she, she wasn't waiting for me to do this. She didn't, she wasn't expecting this, but she must've been asked this tons of times before. So she already knew the second I mentioned hash house, because remember they just changed this back in May. And this is what's insane, okay? Before I get into what she said. Let's let's break this down. Let's think about what happened here. There's two hash houses in the Vegas market at Caesars Properties. One of them is Caesars owned. One of them is not. Up until May 2019, for years, they both accepted rewards credits as full value. And starting May 2019, one of them now is two to one and one of them is one to one. Is this ridiculous or what? Is this freaking confusing or what? How are the guests supposed to know this? Shouldn't Hash House just be Hash House? How could there be two different redemption rates at two different Hash Houses in the same city at Caesars Properties? Think of how insanely stupid that is. Both of them are in Caesars Properties. Both of them are Hash House a go-go. They both take rewards credits. They've both always taken them at full value. And suddenly in May, only one of them takes it at full value. This is so stupid. And they think putting up a sign is going to fix it. A sign that not everybody sees. But she was all ready. She said, oh, I know what you're talking about. I know. No, I know it. I I heard already what you're saying. And uh, that sign's been up since May. So no. I go, well, since May, but do you think all hotel guests have been there since May? Well, May's a long time. That's almost two months ago. Do you think people are in Vegas every two months? You, you you can't possibly think that somebody might be in Vegas less often than every two months or just doesn't go to Hash House like me? <laughs> I had never been to that Hash House location. Say, well, it's been there since May, and there's signs up, and I know there's signs up, and you should have read the signs. I go, okay. Again, and I explained to her why I didn't see the sign, because I told her about the takeout thing. Well, it's your responsibility to read the sign. I I can't do anything for you. 
very, very nasty. She was like very, very – it was an older woman. She was very, very just pissy about it. She must have had this request a million times by now and just was just ready to shoot down anybody. So I said, once again, let me show you. And I actually did a demonstration at the Total Rewards desk. I said, okay, let me let me act this out for you. I actually acted it out for her. So I said, let's pretend you're the hostess and I'm the customer. And I walk in and, I'm, and I did like a walking motion. And I go, okay, hey, I want to do a takeout. Where's the takeout? And she says, over there. And I go, okay. And I look in that direction and I walk this way and I did like a fake walking the other direction. There's the bar and I'm walking to the bar. Now, how am I going to see the sign if it's over here? And I pointed to where it would have been. I go, do you get it now? Well, she was out of responses at this point. I, I proved it pretty well with my pantomiming of the reenacting of the incident at the hash house. So she grabbed the total rewards card out of my hand and stormed to the back. Didn't say she's fixing it. Just grabbed it and stormed away. And I'm standing there going, huh? What is going on here? Well, the nice guy who was helping me there, it was the, the one who got me the supervisor in the first place, he says to me in a quiet voice, she's doing it. He must have known her or something. <laughs> he must have known the way she was. And I said, okay, it didn't look like she was doing it, but like, like the way she just grabbed it and ran back, like it, it's not like she just has a hold on to her all fixed. She just grabs it and runs off. <laughs> like angrily grabs it, like, ah, oh, you got me with that one. Okay, like she just grabs it and angrily runs off. But... uh I'm like, okay, I guess I don't care if it's rude as long as it gets done. So then she comes back and gives me a little lecture again about how she's fixed it, but this is a one-time courtesy, and I've got it's up to me to know about the two-to-one versus one-to-one, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, like I usually do, but Hash House has accepted one-to-one for so long. Why should I think it's different? And the sign was was not well-placed, and, you know, now I'm not going to make the mistake again. And now, like, every time I'm going to ask you, is it one-to-one everywhere I go? She says, yeah, you should, you should better do that. I go, no, I will. <laughs> So that was that. But at least I got the money back there. But how stupid is this? How freaking stupid. This is the type of thing I help Eldorado changes because you've got to use some common sense. And, and you may ask, why does Caesar do this crap? Why does Caesars do this? And you're going to hear something. I'm, you know, I'm turning the AC on. You're going to hear, a, a, I'm all for sound quality, but it's getting hot in this room. I turn the AC off when I'm doing the radio in the room here because it, it makes a you probably hear it in the background. It makes that annoying sound in the background, but then it gets hot when I don't do the radio. <laughs> when I don't have the AC on during the radio and I'm getting hot now. I'll turn it off after it cools down some. But anyway. What is so stupid here is that they have to just think about what the average customer is going to think. The average customer has points he wants to pay with. The points need to have a constant value. They shouldn't be one-to-one at some places, two-to-one at some other places. It's very confusing, very hard to keep track of. Who's going to know what Caesars owned and what's not? I know so much about Caesars, and I have problems keeping track of it sometimes. Imagine the average customer here. The reason that they do this two-to-one crap is because they have to reimburse third parties. And they hate doing that. Because rewards credits, if you spend it as something they own, then it only costs them their own cost of materials or cost of food or cost of service. For example, if I use them to redeem to stay at a hotel room. 
well, it doesn't really cost them that amount of money. That's just the price of the hotel room. But it costs them very little for me to occupy a hotel room. Or if I go to a Caesar's own restaurant, all they're really out is the cost of the food that they had to buy. Not the retail price of the food that they're charging me. So they get away a lot cheaper that way, where I'm redeeming something of a certain retail value, but it's not an actual cost to them. But when they have to reimburse a third party for that amount, when I spend thirty, when I spend twenty-two dollars at Hash House, and they have to send twenty-two real dollars to that Hash House because I paid with reward credits, they don't like that, so they've changed it there to where now they only have to send. Uh, now they charge me double, so this way they don't have to reimburse at a one-to-one ratio for the reward credit spent. That, that's why they do it. Now, for some reason, some places they don't do it. And they weren't doing it there until May, but they decided in May they're going to do that. But it's so stupid. They've just got to make a decision. If they're unhappy with reimbursing third parties at full value, then just tell them no RCs. Just don't accept them. Or just do it and just accept the fact that part of the cost of doing business. But to charge one-to-one at some things, two-to-one at some other things, and the exact same restaurant, one-to-one in one location, two-to-one on the other location, in, in the same city, it's insane. It makes no sense. It pisses off the customer. It confuses the customer. This is very, very poor operational standards. Story number two is about Smashburger, and in fact, it's more interesting than story number one. What happened at Smashburger, that was my most recent altercation, this incident at Smashburger was not Caesar's fault at all. Now, this particular Smashburger is located in the Rio, all the way in the corner very far from the World Series. It's as far from the World Series as you can get. The Rio has kind of a few different sides to it, but uh, the convention center is on one extreme, and that's where the Rio, where, that's where the World Series of Poker takes place. And then kind of in the middle of the main casino and uh, the Ipanema Tower and the sports book... And, and all that stuff. And if you keep walking that direction, you eventually get over to where the buffet is. But if you walk the other direction for a while, then there's an, a kind of an extension to the casino. It's where the show in the sky used to be, but hasn't been there for some years. And if you get all the way to the corner on the upper level, there's some fast food type restaurants up there. One of them is Smash Burger, which replaced Burger King, which was there before. Smash Burger is a chain... Its claim to fame is serving thin burgers. That's why they call it smash burgers. They smash them down to being thin. Interestingly, this is actually Benjamin's favorite burger because Ben likes thin burgers. Ben, You know how some people love big, thick burgers? Benjamin, I'm talking about my son Benjamin, he hates thick burgers. He always wants them thin. So that's why he likes smash burger the best. And I like it. it smash burger's good and... The fries are good. They have these things called smash fries with uh, you know, like spices on them. It's nothing like really special, but it's it's good. It's tasty. I've always enjoyed Smash Burger. I, I first tried it maybe about five years ago, maybe a little bit more. The one that came to the Rio, I think it came uh, either two years ago or last year. I forget exactly when it showed up. 
I really only remember going there last year, prior to this year. And when I went there last year, I noticed something about it. It was very chaotic, and the employees kind of didn't know what they were doing. Everyone seemed very stressed out, and everyone seemed very frantic, and everyone was very unfriendly and aggressive over there. When I say everyone, I mean the employees, not the customers. Uh, I didn't have any major problems there. So there was nothing, I I didn't complain to anyone about anything, but I just remember getting the impression there that it was unpleasant, especially late at night. That was, that was really when the big problems would occur would be kind of like be like I'd be after a World Series event. I'd walk over there. I think they're some nights open till three, some nights open till two, and never really got their hours straight. But they're open late, so I would go over there sometimes. And it, always at that time, and even if it's not like right before closing, like you can be there like an hour before closing, and it's still the same thing. Where it's just very frantic. Uh, everyone's very confused. Uh, nobody knows what they're doing. And if if they're getting anything wrong, they seem very frustrated. I remember that last year, too, like where they got a burger wrong and they, they kind of treated me like it was my fault. They didn't directly say it, but you could tell you're getting an attitude. But despite all that, I know where I am. I know a fast food place doesn't have the same standards for customer service as fine dining or even mid-range dining. It's fast food the people being paid minimum wage, um, customer service isn't always uh, tip-top at these places. There's some burger chains that really focus on customer service, like in and out They make a big deal about customer service. They pay their employees extra so they can get the better of the fast food employees, and whoever doesn't do a good job or is rude to customers is let go very fast. And same with any managers that don't assert those standards. But that's unusual. The typical burger place, including Smash Burger, uh, you have to understand the caliber of employees you're dealing with and not hold them to too high of standards. So even though I saw the rudeness last year and some of the incompetence, I, I didn't make any managerial complaints. And I, I just kind of noted it in my head that it wasn't very pleasant over there. I still went a few times, but I probably went fewer times than I would have because it was kind of unpleasant. But it wasn't even enough to mention out here. But let's get back to the present, 2019. So I went there, and it was, again, very chaotic. Um, Everyone looked very stressed who was working there. Um, When I got to the front of the line for the cashier, I ordered my burger and she already seemed confused. She already seemed like she was having a hard time like fully understanding what I was ordering. And what I was ordering was very simple. I wanted a double burger with no cheese and plain with, yes, you guys guessed it, a tomato on the side. People people love my tomato on the side stories. But this isn't really about tomato on the side. In fact, the tomato on the side is the only thing they got right in this whole situation. So it was supposed to be a totally plain burger, no cheese with tomato on the side. Pretty simple, right? So I waited a while. It took quite some time to cook the food, a surprising amount of time considering the fact that uh, it's just cooking a burger. But, you know, they were busy, so I gave them a pass on that. So they call me, and uh, I open up the burger, and I notice that 
not only does it have cheese on it, which it wasn't supposed to, but it has everything on it. They've given me a burger with everything instead of a burger with nothing. Yeah. So they got nothing right there. Well, actually, they got one thing right. There were actually tomatoes on the side. <laughs> Somehow the tomatoes were on the side. So, so I, I told them. I said, uh, excuse me, this is wrong. And I said, this, this is not plain. And in fact, uh, it has cheese on it, too. I said, everything's wrong here, except you do have the tomatoes on the side, but everything's wrong. So the structure of Smash Burger late at night over there is uh, a bunch of regular employees. One works the cash, sometimes one or two are working the cash register, and they're wearing black shirts. And then there's several of them in the kitchen who are cooking. And then one of them also, like, standing in front of the kitchen, handing the food to people. It kind of seems like there's too many employees there not doing very much, but that aside, uh, there's one person who's in a red shirt that appears to probably be the manager because she's wearing a different color shirt than everybody else and kind of seems to be directing things. And I was right. She was the shift manager. And everyone there is pretty young. Uh, the shift manager looks young. They, they all look young. And I, I'm going to say something here, which I don't want anyone to take the wrong way. Uh, the whole place has kind of, uh, and when I say the place, I mean the employees and their attitudes. It, it really seems very ghetto. And I don't want you to think this is about race, because as you'll hear from this story, the main complaint I have is about a ghetto person who is just as white as I am. It's someone who seems very ghetto but is white. So it's not a – this isn't a code for any kind, anything that's racist. I'm talking about the way they behave, the way they talk, uh, the level of professionalism. That's that's what I'm referring to, nothing about race. Again, the as you'll hear in the story, my main issue is with someone who's the same race as me. So um, anyway, again, I, I realize this is fast food. So I'm, I tried not to hold too high of a standard. But I could just tell. I could just tell that this uh, ghetto white chick who's the shift manager who looks like she's in her 20s and uh, has kind of a trashy look to her, I could just tell that she wasn't going to take to this very well. So I told her the food is wrong, and she snapped me. Well, that's what it says. That's what it says. You're telling me this, that, that ain't what you ordered? I said, no, no, but I ordered it just plain. What you order? I, go, I ordered it plain with uh, no cheese. That ain't what it says here. I go, I, I don't know why it says that there, but I ordered it plain with no cheese. In fact, look, I, I wasn't even charged for cheese. This wouldn't even make sense. She snatches it out of my hand. A lot of snatching in these stories. <laughs> we also had the total reward supervisor snatch a card out of my hand. But she, she snatches the burger out of my hand, just grabs it from me, doesn't say sorry, and she starts shouting to the employees in the kitchen what to do about to cook he said he wants just meat and bun they yell back meat cheese and bun not cheese meat and bun just the meat and bun only do that so it's clearly understood eventually after talking back and forth so i'm like okay this is very stressful but all right i'll just i'll just uh cool out here and just wait for the burger to be remade and take it and leave. I wasn't going to ask for anything, wasn't going to complain, just going to chalk it up to this being a fail smash burger location and understand where I am and just leave and be done. So I waited and waited and waited. 
I look around, I see a lot of unhappy looking customers. A lot of people who seem to be also waiting. Their food wasn't wrong, but they're just waiting and waiting as well. And I'm thinking, hmm, this is not looking good here. A lot of people looking unhappy, service very slow, just a general stressful environment there. Remember, this is a smash burger at the Rio. I didn't leave the Rio. This is actually in the Rio. A lot of World Series of Poker players go up there if they know it's there and, and eat there. So I wait a long time, and finally, the uh, male employee who's kind of standing in front of the kitchen and hands people their food says, Hey, man, your burger's ready, and hands it to me. And I open it up. Well, it's an improvement. It wasn't full of stuff on it anymore. It was a plain burger, except it was a plain burger with cheese. (laughs) They screwed it up again. So I said, oh, it's still wrong. It has cheese on it. Guy goes, well, I thought it was supposed to be a plain burger. I said, no, no, plain burger without cheese. Look, she even told them back there without cheese. So then he brought her over and I showed it to her. And she looked pissed. Now, at this point, she wasn't blaming me, at least not outwardly, because you know she shouted those instructions herself. So instead of apologizing at that point, she again snatches it out of my hand and storms off. I didn't know where she was going, but I watched, and she went to the back. And I thought, oh, okay, well, she's being rude about it, but at least she's going to do it herself. I assume that she can't trust them to make it right, so she's going to do it herself. I go, okay, well... At least I know it's going to be right this third time, and at least, like, I, I can't say I was impressed by the way she was handling it because she wasn't apologetic at all, and in fact, it was the opposite. She was acting like I was the problem. But at least it looked like she was taking charge and going back there to cook it herself and was probably, you know, instead of putting me on the queue behind everybody else, that she's going to go make it right away herself and make sure it's right. Or so I thought, but I was trying to see what she was doing in the kitchen. It's kind of hard to see over the counter, but I'm tall enough to get somewhat of a view. And after some time passed, it didn't look like she was cooking any burgers. It looked like she was on the other side of the kitchen cleaning. Cleaning? Why is she back there cleaning? Why would she take the burger out of my hand, storm back into the kitchen, and clean? Well, I don't know for sure. I didn't get justification from her, but I thought back to something that happened once uh, 18 years ago when I was visiting a girl who had moved. It was a girl I had been involved with, but then moved out of state, and we tried to make it work, and it just didn't. So on my last visit there, it just wasn't working, and it was clear it wasn't working, and I kind of vocalized to her that I think we're done. And she suddenly went into like a cleaning frenzy and just started cleaning the, the, she clean, she like cleaned her whole apartment like super thoroughly. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And, and she's like, never mind what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, so she was like cleaning to relieve stress. It was really weird. Um, I, I felt like bringing her back to my place one more time and, and pissing her off. At least, uh, I'd save money on a maid. But, uh, it reminded me of that, that, she apparently went to the back and was cleaning to avoid dealing with the situation. Just get her mind off of this and just screw me. And uh, I didn't even know if they were remaking my burger. She snatched it away and went to the back and I didn't hear her say anything to anyone and she just was cleaning back there. I'm going, 
what the hell? Am I ever going to get my burger? So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, in the meantime, while I'm waiting, um, a guy starts talking to me there. And the guy says, you know, I've been listening to this whole thing. I can't believe this. <laughs> so I wasn't sure if he's criticizing me yet. So I'm thinking, well, I hope he's not criticizing me. He says, I heard you order. It sounded pretty straightforward to me. You just wanted the, the, the meat in the bun, right? And the tomatoes on the side. I said, yeah, that's exactly it. He said, yeah. So I don't know why they can't get it right. I said, yeah, you know, they got it wrong twice. He said, I saw. He said, I can't believe this. And uh, so he was agreeing. He was telling me he thought they were being rude to me too. So <laughs> at least outsiders watching this who had no reason to take my side were seeing the same thing I was. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. I, I'm, I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea if they're remaking it. I'm standing there. Um, I'm about to finally ask them to get her. But the uh, keep in mind, the other employees look kind of pissed and aggressive too. And, and these are male employees. I don't even know like how short of a fuse they have. I even pictured if I pissed them off too much, are they going to like punch me or something? I didn't know. Like this is a yeah. These are fast food jobs. They're like they have a career to protect. I wasn't that scared of it, but these are kind of in the back of my mind. Like, uh, you know, how much do I want to push everybody here? Because everyone looked frazzled and stressed out here. Um, But I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's not coming. So I... After some time passed, I finally went to the guy who hands out the food and I said, uh, can I talk to the manager there? He says, she's busy. She's busy. She'll have to you know, come out when she wants. Well, what do you want? I said, well, I, I, my burger's being uh, remade for a second time. This is the third try to get it here. Uh, can, um, can you just give me like a shake while I wait? He says, I ain't getting you no shake. And I said, well, no, well, why? I, but I, they messed up my burger twice. I've, I've been here for a very long time. I'd just like to have that while I'm waiting. He said, you going to pay for it? I said, no, I, I was hoping you'd give this to me comp after everything. He says, you want me to give you a shake for free? Why would I do that? And I was like, I'm trying to explain to him, like for all the trouble and all the time. He says, you ain't getting no shake unless you're going to pay for it. That, that, that's for sure. So, so, so then, uh, I, I dropped that for the moment. In the meantime, someone there was recording this on their phone. And I wasn't sure if they were recording it to kind of mock me or if they were doing it to uh, mock Smashburger. But as I watched more of it, it was clear it was being done to mock Smashburger. Because after filming me, then the guy was filming. And look at this guy over here. He's been sitting here for half an hour and he hasn't gotten his food. He doesn't know where his food is. He doesn't know if he's ever going to get his food. And, and look at this guy over here. He's also sitting with nothing. He's been sitting here for a long time and everyone's just really pissed off here. Like, so so, so the, the, he was narrating his video, which I guess he wanted to be viral. But the, the guy was attempting to make a viral video. This is just some customer there uh, who was trying to showcase how everyone was unhappy. So it started with my thing, with the argument about the milkshake. And then uh, it went to other people who were just sitting there with no food and looking pissed off. So I'm still waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, finally, that same guy who said, I ain't getting no milkshake, handed me, he goes, here you go, here's your burger. And so I take it, I open it up, thank God it's it's plain. No cheese, plain. He goes, you got it right this time? I go, yeah, um, 
but uh, you know, with all this trouble here, I, I really would like something like a shake after all this that happened. I said, look, just give me a shake, and I'll drop this whole thing. I won't complain to management or anything. Just, just, uh, you know, I think that after all this, I deserve a shake, and, and I, that's totally fair. I wasn't asking for money back. I wasn't asking for a free meal next time, or for them to, re- or for them to give me extra food. A shake is very, very cheap for them to make. It comes out of a machine. It's very cheap. It's a very simple thing they can give me as kind of a peace offering. I mean, I, I was being very reasonable. This whole thing probably took half an hour. Uh, so he's then getting very aggressive with me. He said, I already told you you ain't getting no shake. You need to take your food and go home, he says to me. And he's getting, like, he's not in my face, but he's looking more and more, like, aggressive. Like, like he's, he's starting to move closer to me. He's, he's starting to raise his tone of voice even more, telling me I, I need to take my food and go home. And I, and he kept saying, I ain't giving you no shake. And I said to him, uh, he says, why, I keep telling you that. Why don't you listen? I said, well, I'd like to hear that decision from the manager. Can I please speak to the manager? He keeps saying she's busy. Well, one of the other guys in the back keeps telling him to cool down. And to leave this alone. And the manager finally sees all this and decides to come out. So thank goodness I'm finally going to get to deal with her again. So she comes out. And now I realize that the guy I was dealing with who's saying I ain't getting no shake. This is just a, a, this guy is like a minimum wage, low end of the totem pole fast food employee. So he was definitely behaving aggressively and inappropriately, but you know, the. The standards of what I'm holding him to are pretty low. So I'm not even that frustrated with him. Definitely he was, he shouldn't have acted this way, but the manager, even if it's a shift manager, is, is supposed to be held to a higher standard and supposed to know better, supposed to be able to take care of things like this. So she, the fact that she ran away and hid when the burger was uh, wrong the second time was bad enough. But she's letting all this go on, and so finally she comes out. I think she was aware of it going on, but she finally comes out and and says, "What? They got your burger right, didn't they?" I said, "Well, this time after three tries, she says, okay, so that's it. You can leave.'" I said, "Well, no, it took three tries. It tried to like half an hour." She goes, "It didn't take no half hour." This this is a white girl, by the way. This is a this isn't me doing some black affectation here. This is this is a girl who's as white as I am. She's a short white girl. And I'm saying to her, well, look, this, it took a very long time and they messed it up twice. And all I wanted was a shake. He's just, you ain't getting nothing. You get, you got your burger. It's right. It, you got exactly the food you ordered. So that's it. You can go now. And I go, so you don't think that it was any problem. It took three tries to make my burger. Nope. So I said, uh, she said, nope. I said, so just. All this extra time I had to wait for it to be remade twice. Tough luck on me. She says, yep, tough luck on you. So that's it. Nothing more. So um, I couldn't believe this. I said to her, look, um, I'm going to go to the general manager about this, but I'm willing to drop this entire thing. I'm willing to forget all this happened. And not complain to anyone and not get anyone in trouble here if you just give me the shake. And by the way, they couldn't spit in my shake or anything because I get to watch them make it. It's like right out in front. Uh, so, but uh, she said, nope, 
you're not entitled to anything. You, you didn't get nothing. Your food's right. You got it. That's all that matters. I said, yeah, but I got it after all this time. This is supposed to be fast food. You're supposed to pay attention to my order. I got put through a lot of trouble here. And she she just, she was treating me like I was the crazy one. That, that I was unreasonable to ask for this. And was telling me, she actually said it's tough luck. She actually said that, um, that, that it's totally fine. That the, I said, you, you, think, you think it's fine? It took three times? Yep. Yep, it is. This is the manager. Not the store manager, but the shift manager. Definitely not someone who should have been in charge. She shouldn't be in charge of anything. Well, I uh, walked off after getting the general manager's name. She wouldn't give me his contact info. They told me I had to Google it. <laughs> she wouldn't, they wouldn't even give me the phone number of the store. They said I can look it up. I said, what's his number? We can't give that out. What's the number of the store? They said, we can't give that out. <laughs> or it wasn't, we can't give that. They won't give this out. I said, what's the number of the store? You can go look it up if you want it, they told me. Can you give it to me? No, you can look it up. Really obnoxious to me. This is the manager. I don't understand why people do this. They, they know. They could tell at this point I'm going to do it. They could see. I mean, you got to be real dumb to to think I'm not going to do it after all that. So, if you value your job, which I have to assume they do to some degree, uh, and I can't imagine these people are independently wealthy where losing their job is no big deal, um, if they value their job and someone's giving you the out, hey, give me a milkshake, which there's no way to even tell that I got a free milkshake. It's not even like they'll get in trouble when there's – it's not like I walk into a, a – say, hey, give me $10 out of the cash register. That that would be caught when they audit the cash register at the end of the day. Uh, a shake, there's no way they can tell if an extra shake was given out. So why not do the easiest thing and the right thing for the customer, give me the damn shake – and then nothing gets reported and everything's fine. Everybody goes along their merry way. For some reason, they they, they postured, they, they drew the line in the sand about this shake and were willing to have me go to the GM about it because I think they were that stupid. I think they really believed that – that I, I see this, let me go back. Remember this, how I told you a year ago it was terrible there and how it looked like the inmates were running the asylum and how they were very aggressive and rude and the whole place had uh, – an atmosphere like they're doing you the favor to serve you and uh, and they're the ones in charge and you, you better fall in line and if anything goes wrong, they're annoyed with you. I think that this environment that they worked in for all this time where they got to treat the customers this way without any consequence, I think they got used to it. So she was clearly annoyed. I think the first time she blamed it on me that uh, I ordered wrong, which I didn't. And that guy who was behind me in line even confirmed I didn't. Uh, but then he, but then they did it again wrong when she shouted the correct order to them. And she was still mad because to her, I'm just the guy causing her to have this stress, even if it's her fellow employees who are messing it up. So the way they're seeing this and their stupid uh, – the logic they're using is that, look, I ordered the food. I got the food. Yeah, it took a few tries. Yeah, it took a long time, but tough luck on me. That's just life. <laughs> 
And why should I get anything free for that? That that was the way they were thinking. Rather than when a place screws up over and over and wastes the customer's time, that uh, give them a little something, especially something that's really cheap to give them for goodwill. And people like that don't understand that concept about goodwill. They just think, well, that's what he ordered. That's what he's getting. How dare he ask for anything free? F him. He's been enough trouble. So that's, that's what they, even if they cause their own trouble, but they see me as the problem. Just not very smart. Not anyone who's management material, even lower management material. So I gave them the out. I gave them the chance. I... I even in cases like this, I try to avoid getting people in trouble. But they give me no choice sometimes. So, next day, being today, I called up and spoke to the general manager. And I prepared for what might be a contentious conversation. I thought, well, if this is the way they act there, and this is the way I acted last year, I have to imagine there's a general manager who's kind of acting that way, too. I have to imagine it goes all the way up to the top. Well, I was wrong. Well, I was partially wrong. I say partially because... The general manager, when I spoke to him, was very nice and very professional, very reasonable. I called him. I didn't see him in person. I could have gone down to see him in person, but I just called him. Very, very different than all the employees I had dealt with at night there. And he leveled with me. He told me I was just hired two weeks ago to clean up this location. See, I found out, I asked him at the front desk at the Rio. I said, is this owned by the Rio or is it uh, owned by a third party? They said a third party. I said, okay, that's what I thought. Uh, is this a franchised location or is it owned by the corporation? And they told me the corporation. I said, are you sure? They said, yeah. Well, they were right at the front desk. This is actually owned by the corporation that owns Smashburger, which is Jollibee. J-O-L-L-I-B-E-E. Jollibee, which is a large corporation, owns Smashburger and while there are franchised units... This is not one of them. This is a corporate-owned location of Smashburger. Now, this is significant because franchised locations often mistreat the customer. And the reason the franchised locations do this is because they don't care about the brand. So if you have an asshole owner, or if you have an owner who's kind of weak and doesn't want to assert any standards over the uh, employees because he doesn't want to go through the hassle of finding new employees, uh, a lot of times... Crappy things happen at franchised businesses. And all the owner can think about is his immediate bottom line. Is he making money today? Is he making money tomorrow? He doesn't care about it, what you think of the brand. Uh, a lot of times they don't think properly about retaining customers and the, the cost of customer retention, the cost of, of new customer attraction. They don't think of all these things. They just think about the franchise is costing me this much. I'm this much in the hole. I need to make this much. I better make this much. I can't give out anything free. I've got, you know, franchi franchises are terrible in, in pretty much all businesses, not just restaurants. And that's a whole different thing to discuss. But corporate locations are different. Corporate locations don't care so much about that particular location and how it's doing. They care about the entire brand. They care about word of mouth. They care about maintaining loyal customers. They understand the cost of acquisition of repeat customers and and every time a customer who would otherwise be a long-term repeat customer stops coming, that that costs them a lot of money long-term. And then multiply this by a lot of customers driven away. It really costs the money long term. 
they're aware of uh, social media consequences these days when embarrassing things happen at their restaurants. So they care a lot more, a lot, lot more at corporate locations when a corporate location is behaving badly. They don't like that because it hurts the brand. And for that reason, they the corporate locations tolerate much less from bad employees. So I was amazed that this was a corporate location because of how long this has been going on. But I guess finally, and this keep in mind this the wheel started on this before I ever said anything. This was already in motion before I even talked to the general manager. They had already fired the previous general manager who failed to get a rein on the situation. They must have had a lot of complaints over time. Not from me, by the way, but they must have had a lot of complaints before, which is not surprising. They fired the general manager. And this was told me by the current general manager. I'm not just guessing this. And they hired him to clean things up. And upon his analysis of the situation, and again, before he's telling me what he heard before my call. He said but that before... That, that, that you know, upon his analysis of what needs to be changed, their big problem there is late at night, and that late at night they're having very very big customer service issues, and that they need to get a hold on it, and that they're already in the process of installing a assistant general manager to work nights to rein in the chaos that's going on at night over there. So basically, whenever this guy goes home, the general manager, that's when everything goes into the trash. That's when the whole place becomes terrible. And order doesn't get restored until he returns the next day in the morning. So I guess the people working under him in the morning, are, uh, you know, he manages them and makes sure they don't misbehave. But then once he's gone, then the, the people at night are terrible. That's, uh, that's what he found. And that's what the last, manage, the last general manager was unable to get control over. So... This guy got the corporation to hire a new manager to take over at the night shift. So this awful ghetto chick I dealt with who told me, um, tough luck on you. Got You got your food. What's the problem? Um, she's not going to be in charge anymore. But she will be in charge for the remainder of the World Series because it takes six weeks to train this new assistant general manager. <laughs> I don't know why, but it, it's going to take six weeks to train the guy, and he's not going to be there until middle of August, and I will be long gone by then. So this will not help me, especially if the World Series never comes back to the Rio. Then it really won't help me. He asked me to document this by sending him an email and describe what happened, which I'm going to. Now, I tweeted about this, and interestingly enough, a poker player named Corey Carroll, who, oddly enough, I played with twice. Actually, three times I played with him. I was with him at two different tables in the uh, PLO8. And then I got him again at the Mixed Omaha. And he's a good player. I, I don't really know him, but he's a good player. And he has some tournament results. He doesn't have huge results, but he has some tournament results. But I don't know the guy, and I didn't really talk to him much at the table. But somehow he saw my tweet. He doesn't even follow me, but somehow he saw my tweet about how awful this Smashburger location is and tweeted back that one of the guys who was waiting for the food and was frustrated was his good friend and even put the guy's Twitter. He put an at to the guy's Twitter who, who was stuck there waiting for the food. And he said that his friend 
was waiting an hour for his burger, never got it, and gave up and left. <laughs> and this was at the same time as mine. So what had happened was the friend was so frustrated about what had happened there that uh, he called up his buddy, called up or texted his his buddy Corey and said, "You won't believe what just happened to Smashburger. I I waited an hour for my food." And it never came. I just walked out. And then there was this other guy arguing about a milkshake. So, so Corey knew when he saw the tweet that it had to be the same thing, that I was there at the same time as his friend. So I'm actually going to refer the general manager to look at that tweet, too, just to back up my story that I'm not just some asshole exaggerating things. But this is a complete mess over there. This this isn't rocket science. This is a burger place. And I've been to Smash Burgers in many locations, including the one that's at Caesars, which is fine. It's a little bit slow, but other than that, it's fine. Including ones in Southern California, several of them, which basically do a good job, and it's it's just a normal fast food experience. And in fact, it's it's better than an average fast food experience. They they usually get things right when they're when they do get things wrong. They're very gracious about it and replace it. Uh, I've even uh, I remember one smash burger in in Southern California they got something wrong and then they went and without me even asking brought me something extra or no I think they gave me a, like a card for next time for five dollars off something like that like without, without me even asking they just handed it to me because they they messed it up like uh, no complaints about the other smash burgers I've been to and I, I'm a big fan of smash burger I like the food and and my experiences at them have been good other than this location this is an awful location and I think it speaks volumes that they're already in the process of doing something about it before I even called. Uh, Matt the Rat responded on Twitter saying it sounded like the GM there was giving you lip service. He actually wasn't. I could tell. I, I can really tell when these managers are really interested in what I have to say or if they're just telling me what I want to hear and trying to jerk me off. This guy really did seem interested in this, and I know for sure they're interested when they want me to document it. Because if, if they're just telling me some, whatever I want to hear to get me off the phone, then they're not going to want me to email them to document it. When they want me to document that, what that means is that they're going to take some action. They're either going to fire someone or they're going to write them up and they want something in case the person sues them later to show that uh, a, a, an independent third party submitted a complaint about them. Because that, that stuff would hold up very strong in court. It's not it's not bulletproof because a customer testimonial could be exaggerated or made up, but uh, – you know, it's it's a piece of evidence to add to the pile, and I've I haven't done this that many times, but there have been a few other times in my life that I've been asked to write a document, uh, write up a report of what happened, and I, I always do it because uh, if I get to the point of complaint to the general manager, it really means that the um, that something went wrong and that the employee I dealt with was a jerk, and so that that manager. Really was she? If she gets fired, she deserves it. And uh, especially, I tried to give her one more chance to get out of it. I told her I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Just give me a shake, and it's going to be done. Wasn't asking for much, but she turned it into a battle of egos, and she was nasty from the start. Nasty. The very start when my burger was wrong. Uh, I try to have some compassion. I know some of these people they may not have very good lives. They're working at fast food. Uh, it's, it can be a stressful job at times. The pay is crappy. I'm aware of all that. I, 
I don't want to be a heartless asshole and get people fired because uh, they had a bad day. But the, the, this location has had a problem for a long time. Honestly, they need to. They just need to clean house. They they need to just get rid of everybody and start fresh, or at least uh, identify the main problem people and get rid of them, starting with that manager. Because they 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 have the wrong idea over there how to treat customers. Instead of uh, we're serving the customer, it's more of a we're in control here. We're doing a favor to the customers to serve them. They're going to bow down to us. That's that's the attitude you get over there. And and here is a big point I always make. When you run your own business, you can mistreat the customer because you will suffer the consequences of mistreating the customer, meaning the customer won't come back and you'll make less money. You'll probably lose money. You'll probably go out of business. So when it is your business, then it is up to you to decide how the customer should be treated. And you will then suffer the consequences of that, whether good or bad. If you are working for someone else, then you need to treat the customer the way your boss wants you to treat the customer, not the way you want to, even if you dislike the customer, even if you think the customer is a jerk. You need to treat the customer the way your boss wants you to. Why? Because if the customer doesn't come back, it doesn't hurt you. It hurts the boss. It hurts the owners. So when you are representing a company, and it doesn't matter if you're working fast, whatever it is, you have to adhere to the standards that the company sets for customer service. So if the customer, if, if the manager wants you to treat the customer with respect, then you need to treat the customer with respect and not yell at them and not act like they're a bother and not blame them for things that are actually not their fault and be gracious and be courteous. And if you can't do that, then you should work a job where you don't interface with customers. And there's no excuse for it. There's just absolutely no excuse. And, and this wasn't just a bad day. As I said, I, I saw the same thing last year. I just didn't have a problem to this degree, but I saw the exact same thing happening last year. And they didn't remember me. It's not like, I was, it's not like they had an altercation with me last year and remembered me. I saw just in general with everybody there the attitude they had there. But, you know, when I do go to the general manager, I, I tell a true and correct version of what occurred. I basically give them eyes into the situation. I have no power to fire anybody. And then the boss decides what to do on what is best for the business. At the same time, I can have a heart. I can realize people can have a bad day. I can give them a second chance to make it right. But if they're going to turn into a battle of egos and fight me and get nasty with me, even when I tell them I'm going to go to the general manager and they still puff out their chest at me, then yes, I will be the one to report honestly what happened to their boss and then their boss can decide what to do. So people say, why, why do you get people fired? I, I don't. I don't get anyone fired. I report what really happened to their boss, and then their boss decides the correct course of action. Also, if someone gets fired, the job doesn't disappear. Somebody else gets hired in their place. If someone who is unemployed then gets a job who before didn't have a job, someone who may be much more deserving. That's also something overlooked. So, you know, I tried. I tried to be understanding as much as I could. Regarding my request for the shake, the first thing the general manager said, like he blurted out, is that sounds reasonable to me. 
She totally should have done that. I can't, I can't understand why she wouldn't have done that, he said. He said that type of thing several times where I could tell he was appalled that, uh, this, this is what this is about. Not, not appalled at me, but appalled like, like how could she be refusing this after everything that happened there? In fact, he said, he said, if I was there, I would have given you the whole meal for free. That's what he said after all that. He said, I wouldn't have just offered a shake. He said, you just wanted a shake and she wouldn't do it. I said, I, I, this is, this is crazy. He, he couldn't believe it. I mean, he, he said he believes it happened, but he was like, he was shocked at, that they behaved this way. And I told him, I said, you know, someone was trying to make a viral video of this whole thing and not just of me, of uh, the other people unhappy that they weren't getting their food. And he knew, he knew he was dealing with, he knew they're already hiring someone to address the situation. So he knows it's a disaster there. So it, perhaps he wants me to email him so once they get a better handle on things and get this assistant GM in place, maybe they're going to fire that uh, shift manager. Whatever it is um, that uh, I would avoid that. If, you, if you're at the Rio for the remainder of the World Series, I would avoid that, that smash burger. It's, it's, or if you go, go during the day. Go during the day when this guy's there. Do not go at night. I'm not going to go at night anymore. They'll also probably spit in my food if I go at night. <laughs> He's like, hey, can I get you a meal here? And I'm like, you know, I, not really because I'm afraid what will happen. I don't think they like me very much anymore. I can't trust any food they prepare for me at this point. I didn't really think of like I could go under him during the day. But the truth is I'd really only want this at night. Like, I'm not that hungry during the day. Especially at the hours I keep during the World Series. Like, right when I wake up, I, I usually just, like, wake up and go directly to the tournament. But even if I don't, like, I, like the first six hours I'm awake, I'm usually not hungry at all. Like, I can force food down, but I could totally, like, just not eat and be fine for six hours after waking up. Then after I've been up a long time, that's when I start getting really hungry. Like, I can even go without... A lot of times I don't even eat dinner on the dinner break for tournaments. I'm not even that hungry yet. Especially if I, like, wake up right before the tournament. And the dinner break's, like, seven hours in. I'm like, eh, I'm not that hungry. I can eat now, but I'm not that hungry. So sometimes I'll, I'll just wait. I'll go, you know what? It's only four more levels. I'll, I'll finish off the four levels if I even get that far. And then after that, I'll go get food. The problem is, uh, a lot of things are closed by then. But anyway, I, if, if the Smash Burger greatly improves, uh... I'd love to take credit for it, but I can't because they already were uh, in the process of doing so. But but hopefully at least maybe he can talk to this girl and put the scare into her and have them imp- have her improve things in the meantime. I don't know if she has the capability. But uh, it was nice that uh, at least I saw I was in the in the right here. Everybody agreed with me. All right, well, here's another situation where everybody agreed with me. Actually, I agreed with everybody who was being brought up beforehand. And that is, the ARIA private games have returned. These are the games that are running in the ARIA poker room where certain people are not allowed to play or they just restrict the games to certain pre-selected people which is supposed to be against the law in Nevada. Yeah. This complaint was brought up 
many times over the years, Greg Merson was one of the first to bring it up that they were shutting him out of games there. And he was very unhappy. Now, these were the high-limit games. This was after Merson had won the World Series main event. So they were high-limit games in the area where... Basically, this is how it happens. Let me explain these private games real quickly again. We've talked about this before on the show. But I, I should recap it so everybody understands. All poker games in the state of Nevada have to be open to the public... And also accessible by the public, meaning they can't be behind closed doors. They have to be viewable at all times. They have to just be open. So there's no such thing as a private game in Nevada, according to state law. The problem was coming in that a lot of shenanigans were taking place in order to make phony private games that weren't labeled private games, but they found ways to keep people out. Now, the reason these private games occur is that these games revolve around certain fish. So they get to know certain fish who like to play there, and obviously people want to play with those big fish, and pros want to keep as many other good pros out of the game as possible for obvious reasons. The way they do it is they befriend the fish. They make the fish think that they're all buddies and they just want to play together. They'll sometimes criticize the other pros by saying they're predatory. All they want to do is try to take the, take the recreational players money. And, uh, you know, you know, we just have fun. We gamble together. Uh, you know, we're not like those other pros here. And they, they convince the fish of this, the fish get to like and befriend certain people. And the fish are all for having these private games because they they see it like, hey, I'm playing with these friends I like here. I don't want these other jerk pros coming in here and and just trying to take my money. Screw them. So the the fish are happy with these private games. And, of course, the pros that are in the private games are happy. The ones who are unhappy are the other pros who rightfully want to get into the game and can't. So... They used various tactics, which I'll quickly go over. We had a whole segment about this last year in in March of 2018. We had a whole segment about this, but uh, here are the tactics they used to use in ARIA to keep people out of games. Because remember, they can't just say it's a private game you can't join because it's illegal, and people could complain to Nevada Gaming. So one thing they would do would be Invitation-only games, where once people are all there, they've closed the game and claim it's that many-handed. So once all the invited players are there, let's say there's seven players, instead of it being a nine-handed table, they say, okay, well, this game's a seven-handed game. And then just nobody quits. And they all stay until it's over, and they all leave together, and no one can get in. There's the Bueller-Bueller trick. Remember in uh, Ferris Bueller? Bueller. Bueller. I don't feel like pulling up the sound clip. But they call the names of the people they don't want in the game once they make sure the people have stepped out of the room. So someone puts their name on the board, they wait around a while, then finally they get to, you know they they step out to go to the bathroom, and as soon as it's seen they've left the room, they call them. So this way the people don't hear their name being called and they can take them off the list. The players on the way trick. They 
hold open certain seats that are reserved for players who they do want in the game, even if these players are not really on the way. They just say that they are and perpetually hold those seats until they show up. The lottery, where they claim that the only fair way to decide who's going to get into this game with 25 people on the board in an interest list is to go do a lottery to pick seven names to get in there, or nine names to get in there, whatever they're going to have in the table. And then they go in the back where nobody can watch, and they rig the lottery to be the names of who they really want to have in the game. There's the fake chip stacks trick where they would put phantom chip, chip stacks. When I say phantom, like the house would take chip stacks that the house owns and put them in seats to make it look like seats are full in order to make the game appear full and no one else can get in. And then there's also the entire separation thing they have there, which is not really a trick, but it's something that just makes the game even harder to access, where they have the games physically separated in some way with either a wall or a door that you can see through, but you can't... uh, That It looks very intimidating to go in there. And if you do try to go in there, then security chases you out, uh, claiming you can observe from afar but not close. They just they make it look like a private game as much as possible. And then there's certain players that they just know they want to exclude, like Greg Merson, and they do their best to keep them out using the tactics I talked about. The problem was that back in early 2018, this really started to get attention on Twitter. And there was even a gimmick account named Aria Private Game, which was mocking this, pretending like it was the, it was actually the manager running the private game, and they write these sarcastic statements on the Twitter. It got a lot of attention. I did a segment on Poker Fraud Alert about it, and I even got some thanks for some people who were playing at Aria that were shut out and telling me that they were glad I was making this public. Another problem that's been coming up is it's no longer just the high-limit games. It started to affect games like 5, 10, and 10, 20. No limit. Because there's also fish that like playing those games. You know, there's fish who play super high stakes. There's also fish who play middle stakes and middle high stakes. And the same thing happens where certain players befriend those fish and they create private 5, 10, and 10, and 10 20 games. So that's what really got this controversy going in early 2018 was that it's bad enough for this happening at the nosebleed stakes games, but now this is starting to affect the typical Vegas grinder who, who's surviving on playing 5-10 and can't anymore because all the fish are being poached for these private games. And that's what would happen is certain predatory pros would jump on any fish that appear they're going to be uh, regular or even ones that aren't regular to say, hey, would you like to just make our own game here with you know the, the six of us here and keep everybody out? Oh, yeah, that's cool. And then they create a private game. and they So every it seemed like every time there's a fish in the game, they would get poached out of the game and a separate table would start and everyone would be shut out. And especially the regular fish were really always going to these private games there, which, again, were always illegal. At the time, Sean McCormack, who is the poker room manager at the Aria, tried to pretend that he wasn't aware of this happening, that he would look into it, which definitely wasn't true. 
but he was trying very hard to make it look like he didn't uh, know this was going on. It was going to look into it and, and put it into the practice if it's happening. And people didn't buy it. But now things have changed. Let's get to June 2019. At the end of June 2019. Yesterday, June 30th. Jason Mercier. Pretty influential figure in poker, right? Jason Mercier has finally had enough with this private game situation. And has decided to revisit it. This is what he tweeted, June 30, 2019. 300-600 PLO running four-handed at Aria Poker. Private. No one can join LOL. I see Ben Pollock try to play. Player Klaus Floor, who comes in and tells him he can't join. I wasn't even looking to play myself, but probably would have hopped in. Hopped in. This is a tragedy. So I understand why Mercier's pissed off. This is a four-handed game, and they're not letting anybody join. Well, someone said to Jason, if I were this Ben Pollock, I would have just gone in and sat. So Jason said he did. That's exactly what Ben Pollock did. He went in. He just sat down. And said, well, I'm taking the seat anyway. There's five seats open here. I'm sitting in one. And security came in and actually booted Ben out and said, you better get out of that seat or we're going to throw you out. So he got up and left. So that's what enraged Jason Mercier, who decided to tweet about this. Why is this happening? Why, why Why is Sean McCormack allowing this? Why is the other floor staff allowing this at ARIA? What, what are they getting out of it? Well, I bet you can guess. There's rumors. I cannot verify this, but there are rumors that there are tips involved. Large tips involved. I don't know how much. But there's rumors that people tip the floor men well, and the games are kept private. The problem is, again, the legality. But we've... Now gotten a new comment about it from Sean McCormack on Twitter. In response to Jason Mercier's tweets, someone named James McHugh wrote, I thought this was not allowed in a public casino. And Sean McCormack actually responded. This is his first response in this whole thing. He said, reserved gaming, he put in quotes, is absolutely allowed in the casino. Uh oh. What is reserved gaming? Hmm. Charter, Kristen Harder, said, I don't believe you've used this argument, at least on Twitter before, Sean. Is this what you're pivoting to? Randy O'Hell responded, It changed in the last several months and it's obviously awful. So then Sean tried to do this false equivalence by saying, So, Randy, in the future you'll take a hard stance on not joining televised reserved games or doing commentary for them? You can't have it both ways. So he's trying to say, hey, look, you know, there's these televised games where where they pre-select the lineup there, so how is this any different? Well, this is very different because a televised game is a, a, a totally different matter. We're talking about just regular games that go at the Aria 
not games that are specifically made for TV. That that you can understand would have a reserved lineup. But regular games running in the poker room? That's not the same thing. But but Sean McCormack is claiming now that there are reserved games and that it's very much allowed by Nevada law. Jeremy Osmus, November 9er of the past, nice guy, played with him a few times at the World Series in the past, said, yes, they are the pioneers in the private game realm in Vegas. Last night after I bagged, referring to a World Series event, I walked around and saw at least three games with set lineups. Between Aria and Wynn, there are between four to seven per day, I hear. So Jeremy Osmus saying that there's four to seven games per day at Aria and Wynn combined that are restricted, that you can't sit in. Ooh. Then Jason Mercier said re- regarding uh, Ben Pollock attempting to sit, he said a player instructed dealer, the player meaning the one who didn't want him in the game, instructed the dealer to deal around him. The dealer did, and they called the floor, who then told him he wasn't allowed to play. Wow. <laughs> Some other player of the game's like, hey, don't deal to this guy. The dealer's like, oh, okay, I won't, and just deals around him like he's not there. Then the floor had security boot him. Whew. Um, someone named Tomas Ribeiro said, me as a pro who has no access to private games whatsoever agree with the private games. Those guys talk between themselves to play with each other. They don't want to play with me. That's fine. Got to respect the customer will. And then Sean McCormack's like, oh, look, an ally. So he's like, you're not the first pro to say this, but those that agree with you don't come out publicly. Thank you. <laughs> and then uh, someone responded, uh, Rachel Lees, we talked about last week. She said, uh, Sean, can't those players just pay Aria to rent the table? I know some card rooms in L.A. allow players to rent tables for a period of time. That's true. Like Commerce, you can have what they call the home game at Commerce, where you can actually pay them to have a game with a lineup you choose in, in a, I don't know if it's a private room, but at least it's your own private table. And you're paying something per hour. Then Jeremy Osmus responded back, yes, you can have your own game for $200 an hour, I think now. This hasn't been the case until recently. It used to be fake names, lists, stacks, etc. for several years. So that is the new trick. That's the new trick. Is they're basically claiming this is a private table that's being bought. And they're just furnishing the dealer for a set rate per hour. And they claim this is legal, which it might be. But there is a gray area here because this is in conflict with the other law in Nevada that all poker games have to be visible and open to the general public. So is there really an asterisk on that law? And I I don't know where to find this law. Maybe one of you can try to find this and send it to me. I don't know if there's... An asterisk on this that says that they don't have to be visible and open to the public if they're a private table that's being rented from the casino by the players. I don't know if that's an exception that can be used legally or not, but they're claiming it does. 
Sean also justified this by claiming that poker players don't understand. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not looking at his tweet right now. But he said something like, poker players don't understand that a lot of favors are done for big, important customers. So he was trying to say that a lot of these fish in the poker games also lose a lot of money in the pits. He didn't say this directly, but he's trying to imply it. They lose a lot of money in the pits. And therefore, these players basically get whatever they want. So if they say, hey, I want a private game, they don't think about, hey, let's be fair to the poker players. They think, well, you know, for good business, to get this guy to be happy, who's going to play in our casino so much and lose so much money here, we've got to give him the private game he wants. So he's saying, you don't understand the way casinos work. Certain people do get priority. And okay, so that, that's the best argument he's put forth so far, Sean saying that we do have casino VIPs, and as much as it might bother you poker pros, the truth is we've got to make these guys happy. And if that makes means we have to do private games for them, we have to do private games for them, as long as it's within the parameters of the law. The problem here is that this is not so much a request by the fish. This is a request that the fish are goaded into... They're not goaded, but they're uh, convinced to go along with predatory poker pros who are not important to the casino, who probably tip the floor men very well, are the ones who come up with these ideas, and then the fish go along with it. The truth is, if the fish were just told, hey, this is against our policy, they'd be, oh, okay, they, they wouldn't care. The fish seem to just go along with whatever the pros want, and I don't think they're that emotionally attached to this. I think the uh, – and no one's saying that the fish are demanding this. The people who are complaining about this are claiming that uh, it's these pros who are making these private games go. And I believe it. Rachel Lees is in the thread trying to get people to complain to Nevada and putting links to forms to do it. She loves to instigate, but I, I agree with her here. Chris Moneymaker injected a little bit of humor there. He said, weird, they said that I was welcome to play. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Self-effacing humor from Chris Moneymaker. Ryan Miller tweets... Aria's written rule is no game can be private unless it's five-handed or more. And if it's five-handed or more and you want to play, then the unwritten rule is you have to pay off the floor people more than the other people are paying them. And someone named Billy Brown wrote, the floor at Aria take payouts in the low-limit game so people can skip the 70-person list. I love Aria poker, but that should stop. That used to be a big problem with commerce, too. Um, so I don't know if this is really against the law or if they found a loophole here by claiming it's a reserved game. Sean McCormack also told people, I, I trying to look for this here. In fact, I'm just going to click on his name here and uh, see, look at all his comments. He was basically telling them that if they want to play, they can just start a separate game. He said, hey, look, just... Uh, if you want to play the same game that's running as a private game, just have us start another game for you. But that doesn't really work that way, because these games revolve around the fish. So, yeah, you can technically start a game with a few other pros, but that's not what anyone wants. 
So that's not really a good answer. Uh, let me see if I... And then uh, in, in reference to... Um, the private games versus poaching thing. Someone wrote, reserved tables, private games, whatever it's called, is obviously a good thing. It's catering to your customers. A reserved poaching table is just wrong. It's a fine line who decides to let into a private game. You're too good or you're not too good enough. And so Sean says, agree 100%. Poker's always been a self-policing game for things outside our purview and the law, i.e. poaching. That's where we need community's help to make sure this isn't actively happening inside the casino. Yeah, that's that's such BS. See, this is like lip service he can pay there to make it look like he's anti-poaching when he knows exactly that's what these games are. He knows that if there's tips coming in, it's it's to allow this. Jeremy Osmus gets involved again, says the community has helped and told you countless times about the poaching, etc., so it's a very interesting thing to say, to say the least. Everyone knows none of these games would ever go without poaching. Someone asked him, uh, Matt uh, Sismasek says, you honestly believe the poaching's not happening? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty stupid. Pretty stupid. He's just playing dumb. I mean, he knows the he knows it's happening. He says, "I only." Sean also says, "I I only say this to say to those who say zero games in the casino should be reserved. Obviously, Aria runs more televised games than anyone. I know that these games must be invite only." I love how he's sticking to the TV thing. Everybody's fine with the televised public games. This is just something he's injecting into the conversation to try to complicate the matter needlessly. What everyone's asking for is really simple here. And he knows it. He's not stupid. What everyone's asking for is that any non-televised game is open to the general public unless this is a, a situation where a group of people really wants to come and play together. So let's say you have nine friends that want to come play together. Or eight friends, and they want to have the game closed so a ninth person can't join. Fine. Yeah, you have. Let's say you have eight guys in a convention together. They want to go have a poker game. They don't want some ninth pro showing up there to beat them. Fine. Close the game. Run your little private game. I don't think they're going to care. What's going on there, and everybody knows it, is that certain predatory pros are poaching the fish out of the regular games and starting private games with them. And that's the big problem, and the poker room could put a stop to it if they want to, but they don't want to because the tips are probably flowing. He wrote, I'm talking about Sean here, poker room lists are at the discretion of managers and directors. It's only different because it fits your needs. He's talking about the TV versus non-TV thing. What about the needs of VIPs that come in and don't just play poker and game in the casino, spend money in hotel, restaurants, etc.? That, that was a tweet I was talking about where he's trying to say that they have to cater to what the fish want, who, who spend money elsewhere in the casino. That's the only decent point he raised, but it's, that, that's not really what's going on here. It really is about the poaching. This really is a lot of excuse-making because they want these games going. 
Probably because of the tips. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. I don't think this is being done to keep the whales in the casino happy. The truth is, whales in the casino don't care so much about pros trying to play them in poker and take their money because, by definition, a whale in the casino is someone who is happy to risk a lot of money to lose at the casino where they know the casino has an itch. These are gamblers who just like throwing around money. They don't think about their edge. If they thought about their edge, they wouldn't be betting huge sums of money in negative expectation games. So it's absurd to think these same people are going to go, well, yeah, I'm happy to throw away my money on blackjack and craps and slot machines and uh, roulette, but don't want to play good poker pros. I'm going to lose my money to them. i got to get my money in good. Like, that's not how they think. They just go, okay, well, cool poker. Let's gamble. That's what they think. This is such BS, and good for Jason Mercier and Brad Ausmus, not Brad Ausmus, Jeremy Ausmus. Brad Ausmus was a baseball player, not a manager. <laughs> Jeremy Ausmus and Christian Harder, Randy O'Hell, everybody else who's raising issue here. Yes, even you, Rachel Lees, even though you don't play there. Even you. I think I might be the biggest Rachel Lees fan on Twitter, though. I, I really like that Rachel Lee's account. Rachel Lee's reminds me in some ways of myself. It's not me. I promise it's not me. Rachel Lee's is kind of like the older sister I never had, except she might have a penis. That might be a problem. Okay. Uh, I guess that's it here with this topic. It kind of pisses me off. It doesn't affect me. I don't play those games, but it's it's very frustrating. By the way, I guess I can say this now. Uh, one of the people who was happy to hear this segment was uh, was Jeremy Ausmus. He was he told me at the World Series last year that he enjoyed the segment I did in March of that year about this. He is one of the people who cares about the matter, as you can tell. And rightfully so. Totally in the right. Okay. We're going to talk about an interesting situation that occurred at the Fort Lauderdale airport to a poker pro. Supposedly, $9,000 was stolen at the Fort Lauderdale Airport from pro Aaron Mermelstein. This is a disturbing story, and I I think I believe his side of it. In late 2018, Aaron Mermelstein was uh, in the Fort Lauderdale Airport and was going to fly to Costa Rica. He claims that $9,000 got stolen from his backpack from the Fort Lauderdale airport. He said, I went on my, I was on my way to play an event in Costa Rica. I was at the Fort Lauderdale airport having just flown in from Philadelphia. While I was there, I was really busy on a phone call doing a million things. I boarded my flight, and that's when I realized I'd forgotten my bag. 
so the problem was the plane had already taken off. So he couldn't exactly step off and go back and grab his bag. But there is, remember, it's $9,000 in that bag. <laughs> so <laughs> think about that. Think of how helpless you'd feel, $9,000 in your backpack, and it's sitting there somewhere in the airport, and you're on a plane, <laughs> and you, can, you can't go retrieve it. You know, I once dropped $7,000 in the commerce bathroom, fell out of the pocket of my jacket, and I was waiting for a game, so I hadn't bought in with it yet. And then I go sit back down at the empty table I was waiting at to wait to be called to something. And I put my hands in the pocket and go, oh, my God, I don't feel the, em- the, the envelope of money in here. And I panicked. And I go, oh, my God, the bathroom. And I stood up and I sprinted so fast to that bathroom. I probably could have uh, set a world record with how fast I sprinted to that bathroom. And I zoomed in there, and I remember an employee, like when the janitor's looking at me, like, what the hell is this guy doing? He must really have to go badly. So I sprinted into that bathroom and just combed the floor with my eyes, and right away I saw it, and it was there. Fortunately, nobody had gone in in the short time between where I dropped the money, and, and nobody was in there either when I was there. So there's nobody else in that bathroom except for me during all the time the money was on the floor. So fortunately I got in there fast enough. And imagine someone walks in the freaking bathroom and there's $7,000 on the floor. That would have not been good. That would have not been good. Anyway, uh, he said, all right, this is a bad situation, but I was still optimistic. It's an airport and people are generally good. I don't know if I agree with that, but you have to hope someone finds it that's good. But, a lot of people that are kind of good would still find $9,000 go, well, you know, it's $9,000. I kind of use it. So he says, people are generally good, so I was pretty confident that I'll get everything back. I get to Costa Rica and make the call. Why didn't he try to make the call from the air in some way? Uh, it takes them two days, but eventually they get back to me with the news. They found my bag. Great news. I finished the event, come home, and when I get my bag back, obviously I check inside. Everything was in there except for, yep, you know it the money however there was Canadian money about $650 and poker chips about $7,600 worth a check I had from the MGM but not cash so someone only took the US dollars from there they didn't want to take the Canadian money I guess I guess they felt the rest of this was going to be too hard to steal because uh, they'd have to cash it in some way. The Canadian money, which is only $650, they'd have to exchange somewhere. They uh, The poker chips, they'd have to cash in. The check, obviously, they couldn't use because it was written to somebody else. So they figured, we'll just take the U.S. dollars. That's just easy to get away with and use. So he filed a police report. He said, originally, I was working with a detective who was more concerned with proving me wrong than proving me right. He didn't seem to be concerned about the surveillance video as of in the airport. It was more important to him to look at my story. I had to explain I was a poker player, and it was very normal for me to be carrying large amounts of cash. So finally he found out, after a lot of pressure, that the backpack was actually sitting for 16 hours at a cell phone charging station before it was finally found. And he also found that the deputy who found it, named Deputy Michael Spencer 
quote, failed to follow protocol with the unattended bag and also did not report it right away. Uh, somehow he found that overhead surveillance footage showed that the deputy was looking inside the bag and then closed it and then took it into a public restroom. Uh-oh. Glad that deputy doesn't work at Commerce. And that it showed Deputy Spencer returning from the bathroom 10 minutes later and then only turning on his body camera and and that's when he turned on his body camera and uh, called over more police to, that he found the backpack. Spencer claimed he never saw the $9,000 in, in the backpack. So he was not very happy about this. He was very suspicious that Deputy Spencer took the 9K, that he opened up the backpacks on 9K, uh, walked the bag into the bathroom, pocketed the 9K, brought the bag back to where it was before, and then said, oh, okay, Hey, everybody, we found the bag, and then other officers came over there. The problem is that they cannot get a hold of the surveillance video. Through the Florida Civil Rights Coalition, he filed a petition for the release of that video. The Broward County Sheriff's Office has refused to release it. And internal affairs investigated and oddly said there was no misconduct found. He said, we want the tapes, we want the body camera footage, but they're keeping it to themselves. We need to see everything that happened, but clearly something did happen. Right now, we are filing for public disclosure. They can play this game and try to keep it to themselves. The bottom line, we're going to have to see what happened. So... He says he's going to keep pressing. He said, a lot of people in my situation would let this go with lawyer fees and everything else involved. I might not make my money back at all. It's a huge headache, but it's important to me that I fight. This kind of thing doesn't happen to other people. We should be able to trust the police. And there were some other incidents in the past, not quite like this, but uh, DEA agents took away a $50,000 Rolex watch and $15,000 in cash from Viffer back in 2003. And Gina Fiore, I've talked about before, an advantage player, sometimes poker pro, but more of a casino advantage player. She had $100,000 taken from her when she was at the airport in Atlanta by police over there and had to file a lawsuit to get it back. And then there's all those civil forfeiture things going on where they target poker players or gamblers that are known to have a lot of cash on them and crooked police departments pull them over and claim they're suspected of some crime and seize the money and make it very difficult for the players to get the money back. Gina Fiore talks to me on Twitter sometimes. I've tried to get her on this show. She always makes an excuse. I'd really like to get her on here, though. She has an interesting story. She denies she's the one that was really bitchy to me one time at Bellagio, but it's, it's too long ago. I can't remember. I think she's probably right. I think it wasn't her, just someone who kind of looks like her. But uh, that was the way I first came in contact with her. Was she, she emailed me 
a while back and said, hey, can you remove this story you wrote about me here because it's not true. I never played with you at Bellagio. I've never bitched you. Like, so, you know, like you have me confused with someone else. I'm like, well, you know, it does kind of look like you, but it was a long time ago. It could be someone with a similar look, and it was only on a one-time basis. I don't remember well enough, so yeah, okay. So whether it's her or not, uh, we get along now. She even sent me a message some months ago asking how everything is with the anxiety and all that. I told her it's improved. So yeah, pretty disturbing story, though, with this uh, Mermelstein guy. Now, you got to be careful. Like, I mean, I, I know this is coming from the guy who dropped $7,000 in the commerce bathroom, but, but, but even, you know, even there, I, I, I caught it so quickly, I, I got back in there. When you're carrying a lot of money around, you just got to always have it on you and just always keep obsessively checking. Like, to leave a backpack behind that has 9K in it is pretty bad. But it's pretty crazy that the police will not release a video of it, the surveillance video. That and I think it speaks for itself. If he really looked in the bag and then brought it to the public bathroom and then turned on his video camera when he came out, I mean, it's obvious what happened there. That's really bad. I hope there is justice in this situation. All righty. I think we got one more topic here. Two more topics. Okay, quick update on the Agua Caliente situation. Remember, we talked about that on the last show. It's our lead story about how people were having their jackpots and tickets, slot tickets, confiscated because they were playing a promotion there that took place every Wednesday. That every time you hit a jackpot of twelve hundred or more, that you would get a five hundred dollar free play ticket each time that not only was the casino canceling the promotion on people, but then they were refusing to pay out the jackpots they were rightfully hit. And they were also refusing to, in some cases, let people cash out at all, which all these things should be illegal. Anything you rightfully win in a casino, you should be able to keep. And these players are not accused of cheating in any way to win these jackpots. They just didn't want to pay them. They just thought they were advantage players, and they kicked them out then and wouldn't pay them. Really bad. This was alleged, I don't have proof this occurred, but it has been alleged by multiple parties, including one who created an account on Poker Fraud Alert, a guy by the name of Bear Necessities. Well, I was given an update that Agua Caliente has changed their minds, and they contacted all affected people who... They would not let cash out and wouldn't pay their jackpots that they've contacted all the people that they owe money to and told them to come down and they will pay them. Apparently the mainstream press was alerted to the situation by someone involved in this whole thing and this someone got um, one of the TV networks to call up Agua Caliente and start asking questions and they were afraid this would become a big story and then decided to contact all the players and say, hey, we'll pay you. But this doesn't have a completely happy happy ending because they told the players, you're still banned, but you can come down one time and get your money, and then you're banned for good. So nobody's going to get out of their ban, 
but at least everyone is going to get paid, which is the most important. So this was not something Agua Caliente supposedly did because they felt it was right, just because supposedly they were afraid of bad publicity. This is what I was told. This is all third-party information. Take it as what you want. But uh, I will say that promotion did disappear a very short time after that initial post by Bare Necessities. So something happened there. And a number of Advantage players have talked about it. In fact, we even had a listener to this show call in and talk about how he played this promotion and how they were paying at the beginning. And then when this started, a lot more people started doing it, they decided to clamp down harder and harder. So at least people got paid, but probably not for the right reasons. Probably more of fear of bad publicity. But good for whoever reported this. And Well, actually, that person is... It's not whoever. The person actually was the one who contacted me and gave me this update, but I don't know if they want it revealed who they are, so I'll just say the the person. (laughs) All right. uh, Just wanted to give you that quick update. Final topic, the World Series of Poker... Not the World Series of Poker. The Poker Hall of Fame. Not World Series of Poker Hall of Fame. Though it is owned by the World Series of Poker, so I'm not too far off. They, They bought the Poker Hall of Fame. The candidates have been announced, and some of them are familiar names. But I think they all might be. Chris Burin, David Chu, Ellie Alezra, he's definitely in the uh, Debtors Hall of Fame, Antonio Esfandiari, Chris Ferguson, interesting, he's on the ballot, Ted Forrest, Mike Matisau, Chris Moneymaker, David Oppenheim, and Huck Seed. In an informal poll on Poker Fraud Alert that was posted by Sean Fanning's limp dick. Not Sean Fanning himself, but only his limp dick. Uh, Chris Moneymaker was the easy winner of this poll with 34.78% of the vote. The problem, well, there's a lot of problems with the Poker Hall of Fame and the voting process. First of all, only two people get in each year, which is stupid. It shouldn't be based on that. It should be more of a yes-no vote, not you have to select two, because what if there's three who are deserving? Why do they have to keep going in the ballot year after year? It's not fair. Uh, even if they want to restrict it to two, another problem is that they combine players and non-players to compete with one another. This year, at least everybody's a player. But there's been other years where tournament directors and others in poker who whose main contributions or only contributions were not at the poker table. Last year, John Hennigan and Maury Escandani made it into the Poker Hall of Fame. There's 56 people in that Poker Hall of Fame. There is a panel of 30 current members and 21 poker industry media members who vote who will make it in. And I'm going to explain the voting process, which is a disaster. I've explained it before, but I'll remind you guys. So, again, there are uh, 10 candidates, as there always are. At least this year... It's all players. It's not players versus non-players. 
But there's 10 candidates. I think all of them have been on the ballot before. And the way the ballot works is you can allocate points to each one. So you get 10 points, basically, to distribute among the 10 players. And uh, this allows you to... um, Right, no, it's not Tim. Sorry, it's, it's the wrong. Way. I'm describing it wrong. Um, you you would you would put uh, it's not points. You, you you let me start this over. You distribute the votes first through tenth, and based upon where you put them, they get points. So I believe they get ten points for first, nine points for second, eight points for third, etc., and uh, one point for tenth. But you also have the option to leave it blank for certain people. So let's say you just think that uh, three of them deserve induction and the other seven don't at all. You can just fill out a first, second, and third and leave the others blank. If you are left blank, you get zero points. Now here's where the problem comes in. When somebody gets zero points, that can really hurt them. And instead of really looking at tallying points, you need to look at it a different way. What you need to look at it as is each time somebody gets a first, they get 10 points ahead of people who get nothing. So let's say people want to rig it for, I'll just pick a random here, for Antonio. Let's say Antonio has some buddies here and they want to rig it for him. Even if the buddies who want Antonio to get in think that there is a decent second behind him, let's say they think Chris Ferguson should be number two. And let's say they think that uh, Mattisau should be number three. They may not want to put Ferguson as number two or Mattisau as number three, because if they do, then Antonio only gains one point on Ferguson and two points on Mattisau. And maybe if other people vote differently, then that can push Ferguson and Mattisau ahead of Antonio. However, if they just put Antonio and no one else, he gains 10 points on everyone. Or let's say they have two candidates they like. So they'll let's say they say, we want to see Antonio and uh, Chris Moneymaker win. So I'm going to give Antonio at first place, Moneymaker second, and no third. Everybody else just blank. Well, that automatically gives 10 free points to Antonio and 9 free points to Moneymaker. So whatever they were behind, they jump forward. And this is very powerful because by not having other people on the ballot, by not, by not selecting those others on the ballot and giving them zero, this allows the preferred candidates to jump much further ahead than if everybody was voted for from first to tenth. Furthermore, if there are voting blocks, which I've heard there are, where people get together and all vote the same way, then they can really propel, propel their preferred candidates to the top. A small voting block can make 
a lot of difference if they all vote this exact same way. They pick the two they like and leave everything blank for the rest. So multiply what I just said, where they pick the top two, give everybody else zero. Let's say you have five or six people doing that. This gives such a head start to those two that it becomes hard for them to lose. So a relatively small voting block can override everything else just from the mathematics of the situation. Now, this has been pointed out many times, and they do not have the desire to fix it. They almost seem to like the fact that there are these voting blocks. The nomination process is weird, too. They never explain how it's done. It just happens. There's just people nominated. But what about people who are deserving that don't get in, that are never get nominated? What can they do? Nothing. Because the nomination pro- process is secret. They just do it. They just say, here's the nominees, and that's what we've come up with. Now vote. And then there's the 51 people voting, but as I said, it's a relatively small voting block can make a huge difference through that trick, which has been alleged to be happening. This has been screwing certain people out of the Hall of Fame who deserve it, such as David Chu, who I've long advocated to be someone who should get in. So it's more about how many friends you have in the current uh, group of people who are voting than anything else, and also how many friends that are willing to get together and do this trick. I can't understand why they won't fix this, but I think they all like it the way it is, and even with the World Series owning it, nobody has the incentive to change it. And there's not enough people speaking out about what a joke it is. But if you've seen some weird winners in the past, that's how it's been happening. Well, that's it. The next show is going to be either after the World Series... Or if I can find a day in between the main event and uh, when I play the, the 3K limit hold'em if I'm out of the main event by then. I should tell you what I have left before we finish. So later today, in 13 hours, I'm going to be playing the satellite. It's $1,100 buy-in satellite to the 10K limit hold'em. Now, whether I win or lose this satellite, I'm still playing the 10K limit hold'em. That's set in stone. The satellite is just being played basically to make money. So either I'm going to lose 1100 or I will make it to the end of the satellite, and then I will distribute the money to both myself and the backers at full value. If I win the satellite, you do not get a piece of me in the 10K, That's sold separately. You just get the cash equivalent. So if I get 10,100 worth of Lammers, which would be the the prize there, then you would get uh, whatever percentage you have of me in package number one of that 10,100, which is the best result. If I do not cash in it, then you know what you get. 0.0001%
zero. July 2nd, tomorrow at 3 p.m., I will be playing the 10K Limit Hold'em. An event that three years in a row I have been first or second chip leader around level 7 and 8, only to be rather short by the end of the day every single year. Three in a row. How it always happens that way, I don't know. Last year I said, hmm, my chip stack's mediocre here after six levels, but I wonder if level seven I'm going to rock it up just like last year. And then level seven I rock it up just like last year. <laughs> That's just... Then I say, okay, I'm not going to chunk it off this time. Then I chunked it off this time. Three years in a row. I guess there's nothing you can do if it, that's what the cards do to you, but, uh, try to be careful. Maybe I won't run it up though. Maybe this will be the year I just don't run it up. Uh, after that, the main event. I don't know what will happen, but actually I do know what will happen. The main event does actually have a, I was going to play the middle day on July 4th, unless I make Day three of the 10K limit hold'em, which I hope I really do. And then I will play it on July 5th. But otherwise, I play the main event on July 4th, which is the 14-year anniversary of when I won my bracelet, July 4th, 2005. Finally, I'm going to play the $3,000 buy-in 6 max limit hold'em on July 8th. If I do not make uh, day three of the World Series of Poker, I believe that uh, July 7th is day two for the uh, event. But if I'm still in the main event, then I will not be playing that for obvious reasons. So that's my schedule. Uh, nobody has a piece of me in the main event, but everything else I've described people have pieces and if I do not play the 3k limit hold'em because of the main event then of course people will get the full refund including the markup just as people will be getting the full refund including the markup for the second bullet of the mixed Omaha which I did not use if you have a piece of me in package number one right now I owe you like $53 something in uh, per share but we're not done yet we've got the satellite today and we have the 3k limit hold'em on July 8th then we'll be done with package number one so we, we still have a chance to finish over $100 per share which would be the break even mark last year we almost were there last year it was $96 I think I returned to people per share when they paid 100 very close not quite as close this year, but there's still two events to play. Hopefully they go well. Hopefully something goes well. I do have three caches already, but I'd like to see more. I'd like to see something bigger. Got close with PL08, but didn't quite get there. Anyway, that is it. Thank you for listening probably listening in the archives let me see what the ratings are yeah, they're not very good but it's not surprising
I'm going to have to download all this with a slow Rio internet. And then uh, combine everything. Because of both the break I took and the stupid thing where it cut my internet. I'm not really in the mood to do that, but I'll do it. If you're around the World Series for the main event or anything else during this week in July, feel free to text me on 775-372-8355. And I'll tell you where I am. You can say hello to me. Don't be afraid. I like meeting listeners. And if you're at the main event, good luck. If I can give you a piece of advice for the main event, it's to play it differently than any other No Limit tournament you've played in your life. Play it slow. Do not ever feel rushed to get hands in unless you're super short. Don't put your money in marginal spots. Try to stay out of races. Don't overbet. Don't press too hard. Just let the hands come to you. And if they're not, be patient. That is the best way to play in the main event because the structure is super, super slow. And you don't have to play crazy to chip up as you do in events where it's faster. And even some of the good aggressive players totally change their style for the main event and play much lower. So keep that in mind if you're playing the main. And keep in mind that a lot of times in the main, people really have it when they're betting more than any other tournament. So that's something to keep in mind, too. That is all for this broadcast. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, which should continue for the foreseeable future on PokerFraudAlert.com. Good night and shalom from the real.